This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Scott. Could I be known as Paul Muad'Dib? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Martha. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Will. <laughs> We're going to talk about Dune, a novel by Frank Herbert, first published uh, in 1965 as a complete book and serialized in Analog starting in 1963 and continuing to 64. I uh, read this book when I was at the appropriate age, uh, probably around 15 or so. Um, Me Will, too. Will, did you read it when you were that age? No, I read this book about two years ago at the tender age of 22. Oh. Okay, well, you're a little old for it. it. The training is not going to take as well. You have to start <laughs> very young <laughs> to, be, to become a mentat. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, first, I first read this in college. Wow, yeah. Yeah. It didn't take yeah. very well, did it? Mentat <laughs> training. <laughs> starts, I don't know. Yeah. Marissa, when did you start your Bene Gesserit cha- training? Um, I think I was a little bit younger, like maybe... Maybe 13 or 14 Ooh, or something like too that. Too early, too early. Yeah, too early to get <laughs> all of the detail, like to understand it completely, but um, old enough to love it. <laughs> Matt? 15. Perfect age. Perfect age. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this, this book has a trope. Um, it it has a lot of tropes. Uh, well, it has, you know, I, I, I guess the crowning trope of a certain kind of science fiction, and that is the uh, um, fans or slans trope, right? Uh. <laughs> Where the main character is an avatar for the reader, and we are the universal super being as we read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's why I didn't like the second book, <laughs> the third book, <laughs> and all that stuff, because I just realized that it turns you into an asshole, um, a monster. And yeah, uh, and eventually a worm, <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Um, but other than that, I, I I can't really see a lot of criticisms. So I guess we're done, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> see ya. Good night, everybody. Well, that was a picky yeah, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't I didn't tweet it at anybody else, but I wanted to um, point out that this book has a lot of drugs. Um, last night I started tweeting all the drugs in the book. One I did not mention was uh, the truthsayer drug, which is mentioned. Um, it, it doesn't say what you know what it is other than the truthsayer drug, but it's not just a person who's a truthsayer. It's also a person who can take a drug and enhance their truthsaying abilities. So if you look up uh, the drugs of of Dune um, on Twitter as a hashtag, all one word, it should come up. And I think that's a good place to start because I think this is a drug book influenced by a druggie, um, and it's very pro-drugs. Isn't that interesting? The spice expands consciousness. It says it right in the text. It does. So the first one I found uh, was a faint smell of rashag stimulant wafted down the table. And then that's as the soldiers come in. uh, The Duke says, there's coffee for those who want it. So it's got two drugs in the first drug scene um second one 
aged. It showed in the roomy shine of his brown eyes, in the cheeks cracked and burned by exotic weathers, in the rounded curve of the shoulders and the thin set of his lips with the cranberry-colored stain of the Sappho juice. So there's the Mentat drug. And uh, by yeah. the way, I guess Marissa knows this too, in uh, fall, the Fallout games, Mentats is a drug <laughs> that you can take to enhance your, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your intelligence. Um Third uh, drug set. The guard captain, uh, Nefud, squatted on a divan across the chamber. The stupor of Samuta, dullness in his flat face. The eerie wailing of Samuta music around him. So this is a drug you you take. Uh, apparently, it's, you burn some wood and then you listen to music and you're you're. It's like <laughs> trance drugs or something. Um, highly addictive. And then, uh, if you have trouble waking him, call on Doctor Yui. In the next room, Paul may require a wake shot. And notice how uh, Paul and his mom, and uh, multiple times in the novel, are taking uh, drugs to help them sleep. Yeah, amphetamines and barbiturates. Yeah, this ups is, and downs. This is like full of drugs, man. And, and, and then you haven't even mentioned the poisons. Nope. A duke's son must know about poison, she said. It is the way of our times, eh? Musky to be poisoned in your drink. All must to be poisoned in your food. The quick ones and the slow ones and the ones in between. Well, lad, here's a new one. The gum jabbar. It kills only animals. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lo- mm-hmm. paragraphs. So, uh, Marissa, did you hear um, how Frank Herbert uh, was inspired by this book or to write this book? I, I did hear a little bit about um, his uh, mushroom mm-hmm. collecting and his huge interest in mushrooms. And I think he even made like a – he did some science, right? And like added something to the – I think you're right. The, the discoveries in mushrooms. The guy who uh, – there was a mushroom guy on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about uh, mushrooms and, and uh, Solly Sybin. I think that's the one, right? The, oh, is that it? Apparently he knew Herbert, uh, and uh, he insists that this is a drug book inspired by uh, by Herbert's taking of magic mushrooms. And yeah. Honestly, I I don't know how I didn't see it before, other than the fact that I've never had mushrooms, but it seems pretty obvious now. Yeah. Even the world itself kind of has that whole. Um that mushroomy I mean I guess like because it's the ecological science fiction you have all that stuff anyway but you can feel that kind of um mushroom influence through even like the creatures mm-hmm. like don't they don't they say the worms are part plant and part yeah, animal that's right like yeah like fungi and and they're ultimately and I'm sure Will will correct us on this sounds like he's been going through the whole series um ultimately will not the um the the actual spice turn out to be like basically poop of worms that has been really? <laughs> yeah. added to water and it turns out into a sort of a fungal mass that explodes on the surface. It's their poop. Pre-spice mass. Yeah. In a roundabout way, yeah. But you're wow. definitely onto something with the network uh, mm-hmm. of how everything is interconnected in this book. And I think that you're totally right about how the the, the drug connection in that. It, I, I didn't feel it the first time I read it, but it seems really obvious now. And it also feels like why it's so different from every other book. I mean, uh, 
I, I, I go through science. I've been through a lot of science fiction stuff, and um, the closest I ever came to anything druggy was Philip K. Dick, and and the kind of drugs he's taken there are not um, they're not this kind of drug exactly. Speed is not the same, you know, as right. Uh, and well, like I know what I'm talking about. But. I guess I guess the other two that I could think of are Clockwork Orange, where mm. they're drinking that milk and sort mm. of phasing out, and then obviously Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where they're taking so much sure, to sure. chill themselves out. But this drug is more like I almost think of it as a technology of the self, rather yeah. than using machines and technology that's been banned. Now they're using drugs in that place to develop human machine. And to develop human capacities in ways that we couldn't have Absolutely. while we were using machines and technology. And notice how everybody's got a drug of choice, right? So the uh, Bene Gesserit, they have the truth-sayer drug. And they have all sorts of basically meditation practices where they get in touch with their bodies. And, and, and how embodied, actually, the training that Paul is doing both uh, – this is a very Joe Rogan book now that I think about it. With he's got he's got the sort of the the body training for uh, for fights, and he's got oh the yoga God. going on. He is Joe Rogan. It's not. It's very Joe Rogany, right? Because he it's the cross between between being embodied and knowing knowing your own body and how it it's functioning and regulating it's the the stuff going into it, um, and then. And then that consciousness expansion through right. uh, all sorts of methods other than drugs, but drugs included. So if, imagine if uh, Joe Rogan like goes on tour or something and there's a prophecy laid down for him in some other country. This could change the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. Um, so uh, those are things I noticed on this read, but I... I uh, also think it's it's just quite a nice book about uh, a mother a mother and a son going on a camping trip in the desert. <laughs> I, I notice different things every time I read and reread Dune, and this was the first time I actually had listened to Dune in audio. I've only ever just read copies of it because I've since the 1980s I've always had at least one copy of Dune with me nice. wherever I've wherever I've gone because this is one of my books in my heart. It's, it's, it's going to sound absolutely trite and facile to all of you. But, I mean, when I was 15, it was 1985, so it was 14, 15. It was just after the movie came out. I didn't get to see the movie because it disappeared without a trace. But it's like, I should read this book called Dune. And it's like, it's a book about a noble-born son named Paul, Paul Atreides. Like, oh, my God, he has the same name as me. I know it sounds really strange to say this. I was like, oh, my God, he has the same name as me. Of course, I'm going to like this character. And I connected with Paul and Paul's story in, in a very, very deep way. I mean, although I really like the Mentas, because, you know, like super intelligent people. And I, what I didn't, what I noticed then and forgotten and then remembered relearned now and listening to this because I was listening so carefully was about the whole idea that they were thinking of training Paul to be a Mentat Duke. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean the Benny Gesserit with their Quizess Haderach trade um, plans weren't doing that, but clearly Leto was look, uh, was looking to make him a Mentat Duke, which is a really interesting idea that doesn't get picked up because Paul goes along the path of being 
the prophet Messiah Savior. Save but, it for the next podcast. Okay, sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I told. I, I, I just really go. I should mention, to... yeah, fairly early. So this we're we're only doing do, the, well, first the first book first. of of the first book of Dune. So this is okay. in this particular podcast we are doing uh, the scene starting on Caladan going to the scene in the desert with mom and dad. Uh, uh, sorry, mom and uh, son and baby sister in the womb uh, and the crying scene. So that's okay. the, that's so, the end of our yeah. How did you put it on journey. Twitter? You said it's up to the point where Paul's crying for his dad. And, yeah, for his daddy. Yep. For his daddy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Hello, there's Brian. I'm adding Brian because uh, he's, he's he's basically the Duncan Idaho of this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Running a little lake, probably high on uh, spice beer. <laughs> wow. Wow. Already the abuse starts. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've all chosen our drug of choice already, so... <laughs> Um, Brian, uh, when did you first read Dune? I was about 14 years old. Perfect age. Uh, yeah. And, wow. uh, I actually read it, uh, on a family trip to, uh, Florida, to Cape Canaveral. Wow. Cool. So, nice kind of, uh, overload of sci-fi there. I think, <laughs> uh, reading while traveling intensifies the reading experience. Yeah. Yeah. I read it on a Greyhound bus trip from Tucson to Idaho Falls, Idaho. Wow. It's a 30 hour trip. Wow. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of deserty terrain <clears throat> to go through. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's perfectly uh, in line with that. You were in the belly mm. of a, of a sandworm. <laughs> I had a few uh, moments because I was uh, re-listening uh, on audio, walking around LA up mm-hmm. towards the, park and stuff and every now and then i'd walk past someone with their sprinklers on or like a waterfall in their garden i'd be like how dare you be wasting water in la <laughs> get the squeezings <laughs> yeah it seems so much more shocking than normal i mean it's normally like yeah the water it discipline anyway, it, it really comes yeah. into effect yeah yeah so jesse so you were you were talking about it being a, a drug-infused novel mm-hmm. um and I think that what makes Dune so amazing to me is that it is that, you know, but it is a whole bunch of other things, mm-hmm. too. It's an eco- ecological novel. It's a, you know, a Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones was around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's just a, it's a whole bunch of layers, just layer after layer. And every time I read it, I get something new. And I, man, we read, this must be the fourth time I've read it. Uh, probably about the same for me. I, I kind of mm. savor it rather than I don't want to get, you know, mainline the stuff because you don't want to go down there. How way. many times have you read it, Paul? Uh, okay, let me. Uh, I was just trying to remember that. One, two, three, <laughs> four. This will be six. This will be sixth or seventh. Okay. Wow. I thought because you said you have it with you all the time, you might be one of these people who reads it like you know every few years or something. Uh, what? Well, Every every five years or so, I'll I will pick it up again. I read right. I read because I read it, read it, reread it, then read it in the nineties, read it later in the nineties, read it in the early two thousands, read it in two thousands, and then this audio book. So yeah, yeah. he Do keeps a little who... electrostatic charged version uh, where he goes <laughs> <Yeah>. with a <laughs> little orange Catholic Bible. Uh. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Have you reread it since you? Do you read it often or? 
sorry, I'm I'm on mute. I'm coughing uh, a heck of a oh. lot, so I'm I'm hanging back a lot. Um, no, this is my third time. I read it when I was 15, and then I read it. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe five years ago, which would have been my mid forties, and now I'm pushing fifty and reading it for the third time. Yeah, and Will, do you read it? Uh, this will be my second read through because the oh, first cool. one was pretty recently, and I've still been chugging along through the rest of the series, which kind of perpetually refreshes you with them. Yeah, yeah I haven't read any of the other books yet. I've yeah, read you know, what, and it's good to kind of intersperse them. It's not something you want to take on all together. I would say. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I remember the first time I read uh, Dune Messiah, I went back and uh, reread the uh, reread Dune in part because Dune Messiah is such a different book. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not, not going to talk about it today, but it's but the one difference that really struck me was that it was so uh, sparse, uh, almost elegant. I mean, it's a really short book and it, it races along at top speed. And uh, I was convinced I'd missed stuff, so I, I mm-hmm. went back to the original to to dig some stuff out. And then uh, I read it. I read into this every year. I mean, it's one of my favorite wow. books. So I remember there was um, back in the, uh, I want to say the mid 80s. I might be wrong on this. Uh, there was a fan production uh, called the Dune Encyclopedia, I think. Mm, yeah. It, it was um, uh, a really, really lavish, rich book, beautifully illustrated. But it came out before the fifth and sixth books. Um and uh, so it, it it was interesting to read as a kind of interstitial point, kind of like with Game of Thrones when the TV show has gone off in a different direction um, before the next book comes out. And uh, so that sent me back to the original book. I, and in part, I, I, I keep going back to the original book, not just for inspiration and for its majesty, but also because Herbert is such a thoughtful and oblique writer. Mm. He, he has these moments where these little and koans deliberately um, all these all these provocative motions to make you think harder and reflect later on um, that it's uh, I find it very rewarding that way mm. I noticed that uh, it shares another uh, thread with the other great book I mentioned at the beginning uh, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and it, I think it, on the back of the copy I've got here it, it's uh, Arthur C. Clarke yeah uh, Dune seems to me unique among SF novels in the depth of its characterization, the extraordinary detail of the world it creates. I know of nothing comparable to it except The Lord of the Rings. Arthur C. Clarke uh, calling it like that, I think on the nose he's exactly right. This is uh, the science fiction version of The Lord of the Rings in a certain sense. It's world building in immense. Its uh, scope is massive and its depth is as deep as the sand it's incredibly deep book um and um, another he talks thread, about uh he talks about preparing for like six years i can imagine i can um, just imagine i guess it all started i mean the germ of the idea was he had he was commissioned to do an article on sand dune migration right in oregon and, yeah yeah so he started to research that and just started collecting stuff and then one idea connected with another idea and um yeah so I, um, but you know he, he and he talks about you know during that six years he's do it's like comparative religions, you know uh, psychology. I mean he's re- he said he read uh, an interview I listened to off of YouTube said he he claimed to have read two hundred books wow. prepping for this. Yeah. yeah, six years actually feels short to me yeah. for the for how 
<laughs> incredible this book is. Like, I would have guessed up 20 years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like, six years you can write, like, a, a pretty good, like, YA novel or something. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. And I think when he took that uh, those magic mushrooms, he's tapping into his... His genetic unconsciousness, right? His X, yeah. X and Y chromosomes uh, detailing back his ancestry and humans for many generations, right? That totally explains it. Mm-hmm. That must be it. Um, I was going to make the connection uh, between the two books and basically sh- sh- say that both of them have a lot of poetry in it, or at least songs. You know, Bilbo's always breaking into song. Frodo's always breaking into song. Strider of Winston Well will say a little rhyme. And uh, we've got Gurney Halleck doing the same thing. First uh, first one that I spot in the Dune World uh, PDF is um, he swung into Galatian Girls, his multi-pick, a blur over the strings. He sang, oh, the Galatian Girls will do it for pearls and the arakeen a- for water. But if you, the, if you desire dames like consuming flames, try a Caledonian daughter. <laughs> that, that, that's the first one. The uh, uh, there's that a, a crazy scene where the um, the Reverend Mother asks Paul about a dream he had, and in the dream he mentions hearing a Gurney Halleck song, and his mother then live quotes the song right right to right. him, which is a pretty dense layer of of, of referentiality. Yeah, he's always I, breaking I, into song, Gurney. I think uh, I think the Lord of the Rings comparison is great. Uh, in in Mentat terms, I think it's a good second order approximation. <laughs> but but the but there's a, a some and, and if you dive into it, there's some other. I know this is controversial among the Tolkien fans, but one of the powerful parts of the trilogy is that it's definitely a reaction to World War II and especially to World War One. Um, and I know that's something that Tolkien fans don't always want to get into, but but you can see that reaction to the present and short-term history. You can see that in uh, in Dune as well. Mm-hmm. One of the big differences is that while Tolkien is is mining medieval and early modern literature, Herbert is going off in really different directions. I mean, he's got this strange scratch mix of uh, Muslim history and language. He's got uh, the uh, resource politics and the uh, then burning uh, ecological movement. Um, and he's pushing them into the future really, really hard. Decolonization politics? Yeah. Yeah. I I found, actually, that what I was seeing was a lot of reflection of uh, Orientalism, which is a phenomenal book by Edward Said. It was published in 78, a little bit later. But what it's kind of saying is that the West is essential is is taking uh, sort of Middle Eastern societies or exotic societies and treating them as static or underdeveloped, and then yep. being able to say, well, because they're static, we can take them apart and we'll understand them. So even when we see, you know, the Harkonnen attack on Arakeen, it sort of reflects Napoleon's uh, Napoleon's invasion of Syria and Egypt. We see right. this way that, you know, these wonderful saviors from across the universe are coming to Arakeen to civilize it, and the beauty we will see in the next two books is how it sort of turns that Lawrence of Arabia trope on its head uh, to a degree. But I think that's, that's a uh, very valid. That's, that's a great, that's a great link. I mean, the Said thing, you definitely get that sense of Orientalism 
throughout the book. I mean, on the, on the face of it, there's the, wow, who are these exotic others? And then how can we exploit them? Um, I mean, that, there's that. And then you get that fantastic invention of the Bene Gesserit seeding the universe mm-hmm. with all the bits. Uh, what's it called? The Mission Protectiva, I think? Mm-hmm. Mission Era Protectiva. Yeah, so that you can just you know drop on a planet and figure, okay, which uh, messiah myth do I activate here? Uh, okay, I need to be a mute with a limb. I got it, you know, and run. Um, and that, that's pretty. You know, that's that's it's interesting that Herbert has that that undoing happening in the book itself. That it invites you to participate in Orientalism, and then undermines it and shows it as a naked power grab. Um, that's a that's pretty subtle for an American book in the sixties. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's also, you know, you, you can cut this in many different ways, but decolonization may be the most important historical event of the 20th century. And Herbert is really, really digging into that right there. And, and, yeah, and it what, ties right what? into the ecology of the of the plot as well, you know, and this this intertwining sort of idea about change and stagnation and how just one tiny little change like deciding to have a fee, uh, deciding to have a male heir rather than a female on Jessica's part that one change in this tiny little plan unravels everything and it allows all of yeah. these changes to happen and all of these discussions to be had within the first book uh, uh, and that really that that's I think you're absolutely right that power is through all six books too because mm-hmm. um, and there's also that that sense of um, of uh, stress and response that uh, Herbert was obsessed with, that uh, you know, you have a social situation which stresses a population and they can respond in a way that makes them stronger or different. When you think about this, uh, I mean, that's the, the secret of the book in some ways is the, uh, uh, the prison planet turning the uh, uh, Sardar commandos into, into an amazing military force and then the same thing happening to the Fremen with the horrible stresses of, of that world. And then something similar happens to Paul, who is under you know, ferocious stresses the, the entire time, and he becomes this galactic messiah. I mean, that's if – if I could just for a second, the fourth book is often widely hated for a lot of reasons. But that stress and response is the center of the book, um, and that's what powers it, and that's what drives the next two books as well. I mean, this goes back to uh, uh, Toynbee, the uh, British historian, who tried to figure out a way to come up with a kind of foundation-like way to understand all of human history. Uh, and you really get that sense here. Yeah, definitely. I was um, I was thinking that uh, in the 19th century, who was it? Uh, Chinese Gordon was uh, taking the city of Khartoum. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the Mahdi, then the Mahdi, right? And so we we've, yep. we've got sort of the 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 native uprising. And who's the Mahdi, right? He's this this name they hear in the marketplace. Uh, for a, um, I mean, one of the criticisms I might make about this book, I've read it before, and I notice it now a little more, especially in the internet age. They're not very good at like. They're not very good at distributing information in this future, are they? So they've obtained a small film book of of a small sandworm uh, printed on uh, film made out of spice. 
I would think that that would be a very hot commodity, and a lot of people would want to see that. They don't seem to have any. They have a propaganda system, but they don't seem to have like a regular entertainment channel where, you know, people could just learn stuff. Uh, well, the Duke, the Duke manages to find three great tutors for his son, and so he gets access to basically every kind of knowledge possible. He's got his mom, a Bene Gesserit, uh, his uh, sort of avuncular, um, bushy, bushy-browed uh, Thufer for his math, <laughs> and, um, and uh, Gurney for fighting. Right? He's 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 got he's got the martial arts. He's got the math tutor, and he's got the uh, uh, the. I want to say his mom is like his yoga instructor, you know, but he doesn't have, he doesn't seem to have a, a great grounding in history other than maybe, maybe his dad was teaching him something, but I don't think so. Um, it feels like everybody should know more about what's going on. Uh, like where, what spice is and, and just cause it's such a part of the commodity, you know, it's such an important commodity. Is that because the viewpoint character is a, is a kid and he's just learning these things or is it, uh, because we're the first book of a series and we have to lay out all the facts, it just seems like a, a little I, less I internet a, than it should be. I, I have I have uh, some uh, reactions to that. Okay, so a couple reasons why we why things aren't laid out so well and why we don't have that sort of technology to educate Paul is several things. One, we're in a future where a lot of computers and thinking machines and technology have been thrown away in favor of a human focused replacements. I mean, the Mentats are human computers. The, the Benny, the, the guild are human, are human or human change that can fold space. So we don't, so they, they don't focus on that sort of technology because of, I mean, I, I know the, uh, the, the Herbert and Anderson prequels go into that and I'm not going to, worry about those the, the 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 dreaded butler and jihad where they got rid of a lot of their thinking machines and so the, the focus of the entire cultures is not to use those sorts of things i mean so if you're if you have a son of uh of yourself and you're the duke you're not going to have him go watch uh internet videos or even read books so much as you're going to employ humans because that's the way you do it also, right, and then Mentats don't have like uh, YouTube. Yeah, well, you know. they need YouTube. <laughs> they're, they're right. They, 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 they are. They are the YouTube. And, right. and, here's a, <laughs> and here's another thing. So, so for the past eighty years, Arrakis has been under control by House Harkonnen, your dread enemies. So, getting information out of Arrakis, oh. even even basic information, is not as easy as you'd think because the Harkonnen veil. They 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 they're, they're they're going to censor every bit of information they can and and they've proven themselves I think even in this first sort of the book of being really bad at information uh, gathering themselves so basic facts about spice and the planet are a limited in their gathering even with uh, kinds there's the the imperial ecologist planetologist and b the Harkonnens are limiting what little they get out so. Mm. The Atreides don't know, don't know much about spice and Arrakis, yeah. and that's because it's because the Harkonnens have kept it that way. So that, see, I would. I'm sorry. Sorry, you go, no, you go ahead. 
I, I would think the spacing guild would be filling that role of uh, keeping information yeah. uh, hidden. Yes. That, yeah, yeah, that's an additional layer out. So yeah, even if he gets off a of planet, then the spacing guild can restrict it further. So there's a real information bottleneck on Arrakis and what Arrakis is all about and the spices by yep. by design of those who have what little information there is. I mean, I, 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 I don't remember if it's in the first third of the book. Sorry, Jesse, but the Spacing Guild is deliberately doesn't uh, allow for weather satellites. Yeah, they, they talked about planets. that. Okay, okay, because I listen you know, to all books. This, um, so this information thing rears its head later, too, because one of the important things that he's doing here is writing about the effect of a messiah on a society. Mm -hmm. right. And what he was particularly interested in was the structure that that uh, appears around a uh, messianic or a very charismatic leader. And it, the, the actions that they take in that leader's name, um, especially without the information transfer or making that slower or more difficult, uh, becomes unmanageable and uh, unpredictable. Uh, and that's some of the stuff that happens later. I think you're absolutely right. There's um, there's this great bit in uh, in Dune Messiah where um, Paul is reflecting on the uh, casualties of his jihad, and uh, he says something like, "Yeah, I've killed ten trillion people, sterilized three thousand planets, wiped out four hundred religions of existence since the dawn of history," and his chief priest says, "Unbelievers all!" Yeah. <laughs> and Paul says, "Oh God, what have I done?" Yeah. I, I okay. First, first, I think Marissa. I, I want to hear what you you were going to say. Um, I think I was going to say, um, although there's not very good information transfer between people, there is one way to do it, which is the Benny Gesserit way. Like they managed to get their fake news out um, pretty well. well, and I was kind of thinking like they really are like they're kind of they're doing what we are accusing Russia of right now, like just like getting that you know, paving that way of uh, manipulating all the minds and somehow their information gets around pretty, pretty well. Yep. Well, that's propaganda. Right. The uh, Gurney's always concerned with propaganda when they go on that, that trip that's going to make pro great propaganda, spread that money around, get, mm -hmm. get the word out that this is a good Duke and he's going to, he's going to do right by you. Um, but I guess, uh, so I guess stories transfer quite well in that world, just not, not YouTube videos or yeah. documentaries. Yeah, I think they they're really lacking in internet, and it 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 feels like, I mean, this is an awesome science fiction book, um, but the science is not on the spaceships, right? We got no rocketry. Uh, I guess we get a little background ecology, but we we also don't really, you know, we just get a list of of the of the plants and animals that uh, are successful on this planet and how they've adapted and. We get a little technology, you know, like the the door seals and stuff. But really, it's about uh, you know meditation and getting in contact with your chakras or what, what you know whatever the actual equivalent. Yeah, of so, so they're allowed machines, but just not thinking machines. Yeah. Well, let me, if I if I could, um, I, in part because I need to get rid of this image in my head. Marissa, you said the veil over the Harkonnen veil over Arrakis, and I have this vision of Baron Harkonnen wearing a veil and I need to purge that from my <laughs> but I think I think Paul and, and Jesse this is a this is a fantastic point you've dived in I, I've been thinking about it I started writing a blog post about it I, I think there's there's two different 
two different things going on here. On the one hand, there's um, there's a sense of pedagogy. On the other hand, there's a subtle and really subversive reimagination of space opera. So on the, yep. on the first, I was rereading this um, over the weekend um, and thinking about it in terms of my work and watching how Paul and uh, Fade Rautha are both students mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. much of the book is about teaching them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned you know, the different uh, teachers they have, formal and informal. I mean, even these, these dialogues between uh, Baron Harkonnen and Fade Rautha, are you listening? Are you catching this? I mean, he's a tutor. He's tutoring his son to be this... Uh, Nephew. To be the next ruler, just like Paul and Gurney and Jessica are trying to tutor Paul to to survive, and so there's a whole and they're, and they're both le- loving relationships, right? One is a uh, kind of creepy uh, uncle uh, sexual predator relationship love, and the other one is like a fatherly motherly uh, uncle avuncular, you know, that sort of. It's like yes the one is the twisted and one is the uh pure in a certain sense right from the start but you and and then there's also the if you will the the policy and the and the curriculum where both cases this is very practical you're 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 training up an aristocracy and you've got to make sure it works i mean and there's all kinds of ways this can do it bad i mean my favorite example is actually the uh the roman empire where you had marcus aurelius Possibly, you know, the greatest Roman emperor, the most thoughtful, most intelligent, who trained his son up. And uh, his son was Commodus, possibly yeah. the best emperor of all time. Um, but this this pedagogy is it's just it's just throughout the book. It's a building's robot, really, um, of Paul's growth. Um, but the flip side, the other part that you, that you guys have been touching on really well, is this idea that all right, we, we've always had the medieval space opera idea going back to you know, the 1920s. Uh, where we're going to go to space, and for some stupid reason, we're going to have kings and queens and aristocrats, right? Um, and Star Wars does this. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that's so brilliant about Dune is that it picks up all of that and then shows how and why it would work and why it works for bad reasons. So, as you said, we have all these monopolies, right? We have the yep. spacing guild with this control. And we have Chum. the uh, uh, company with all that control. We have all these different families, and as far as we can tell, at best, they're benevolent dictatorships. Uh, at the very best, at the worst, you know, they're they're nightmarish uh, autocracies. Uh, we have the Benny Jesuit, who are not just um, fake news providers, but they're also kind of like a dream of Jesuits, which is where the name comes mm-hmm. from. Um, so they're the uh, brilliant secret maneuverers, the you know, Machiavellian people who monopolize uh, education. And we have the terrible uh, emperor, uh, House Carino, right? Um, mm-hmm which has, in Frank Herbert's sense, committed the terrible crime of imposing stagnation. Uh, so the, this whole future Imperium is stagnant and backward-looking. And that is what power is having houses and aristocrats and an emperor. I mean, you see this with the technology. We get rid of, um, of, uh, of cybernetics, and so we go backwards to you know the great mind idea. We you know, get rid of... Uh, of uh, user-controlled space travel, if you will. And now we have Monopoly, which stalls everything else out. I mean, you see this with the, uh, the obsession with kind of medieval Game of Thrones-like tactics with poison mm-hmm. and dueling. But that's because they have uh, new technology for it. They, you know, they have the shield and uh, the las gun and all of that. So it's just, I, I think it's one of the great triumphs of the book is to really 
do a thoughtful parody of of the space opera idea. And science fiction hasn't caught on, which is why we still have Star Wars doing all of this. Um, I mean, it's a retro universe, which Paul starts to blow up by the end. Man, what a maneuver. What a what a huge intervention in the history of science fiction. What, what I really love about that, I think you're totally 100% correct, is that they also he also puts in a modern um, mutually assured destruction deterrence pact mm-hmm. into yeah. their medieval society, right? You have your Magna Carta, which was like, okay, you've got your emperor, but if the houses band together, they could overthrow you. Right. But behind that, everybody's got nuclear bombs. So the how can we atomics. have... Yeah, exactly. So how could you possibly have this dynamic working with this deterrence and then to see Paul subvert all of that while using his own atomics on his own planet? Well, well he doesn't we break he doesn't planet. break the laws of Canley though cuz he doesn't use them on humans. He uses them to right. destroy yeah. a well, mountain, right? This yeah, but, but that's that's the the first political about... debate of uh, 1021. That's so, point, you, 1021. For those of you some of you on this call read this after 1990 for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. Reading this in the 1980s during the, in some ways, the most dangerous height of the Cold War, um, I mean, having atomic weapons meant something really, really terrifying and powerful. Mm-hmm. Did it, I mean, it's ter- I mean, that's why it's a climax of the book. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I was, I was like, oh my god, they're using atomic weapons on that, on that shield. Yeah. Oh, holy crap, Paul's really serious. That's yeah, because yeah. that that was 1985, 1986. So yeah, that was still Cold yeah. War, still mad. It's like, oh my god, he's using nuclear weapons. He's really going for the juggler. That that was, that's yeah. that that felt a really different then than it does now. You're absolutely right, Brian. I want to. Um... Uh, not get too deep into it because we're gonna. Uh, I think we might end up doing an appendix show. You know, we're gonna do uh-huh. three parts of the book and then the appendix, and maybe we'll talk about the adaptations. But uh, one of the things that's not in the only adaptation really worth talking about is um, the banquet scene. Um, oh yeah, and oh, yeah. I think the banquet scene, scene is oh, yeah. is something that w- would. I mean. I think the, a lot of the reasons people don't like that first movie is is because it's it's such a faithful adaptation of a novel. I'm not sure if there has been one uh, as faithful <laughs> a, a novel that's been so faithfully adapted. I there are changes. I I get that. And the main change, by the way, uh, is uh, uh, the Doctor Huey's um, mustache. It, it's droopy in the book. <laughs> <laughs> he has a he has long hair in the book. Um, he has a droopy mustache in the book. But that's basically the only difference between the the two. However, there are some missing scenes, and uh, I think that the banquet scene, it's not about what you film. It's about the emotional undercurrent uh, above the table, right? Uh, so we go around the room looking at all the characters in their mind how they're reacting to the drama that's unfolding at the at the table and there are players there whose whose role is they're all chess pieces they're all playing a game with each other and some of them are allies and some of them are enemies and not knowing who everybody's relationship at the beginning of the story you have a great idea of their relationship at the end of the story and i think it's a great 
macros, uh, microscopic view of the macroscopic greatness of this book. The the fact that it's like um, it's reading like Ted Chiang's Understand, if you know that story. When you read it, you feel like you're super genius, just like he is, because you're seeing all the patterns, right? And here we get a sense of how how good at her job Jessica is, and how good at uh, you know good a student Paul is, as he's picking up all these things uh, that are going on in the undercurrent. So when the Duke leaves the table to go deal with some problem that I think might have something to do with the rest of the plot of the book. Um, Paul takes over and then he gets an insult from, from some Suk Suk guy, water cellar guy, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, it, everybody's basically ready to go to weapons. Um, and then it's diffused in a couple of ways. And we find out that, Liet Kynes has a an ally at the table who's the smuggler, and it's just brilliant. It's just like, it's it's makes me think this is why I don't like going to dinner parties because there's so many dangers <laughs> at the dinner table, <laughs> and everybody's got a, a weapon, a knife right in front of them, ready to go at you. And I, I didn't normally think about poisons, but I'm gonna have to worry about poisons a lot more now. Next dinner party I go to. Uh, isn't this a, wanna, the most important scene in a book in a certain sense it, it, it's a very central scene and it works be, because of the big rule that Dune quote unquote breaks that a lot of lot of novels are afraid to do I mean we haven't talked about style of this book and how we head hop all the time mm -hmm. and we're, we're, and just with within scenes almost within paragraphs we hop into other people's heads and what they think and where that pays off and where that works the best is in this dinner scene as we go from person to person is what they're thinking, what they're, how they're plotting, how they're reacting to everything that's happened on top of each other. And it's, it's an intricate dance as we just flit around the room as, as conflicts are fused and defused. And it really shows the power of Herbert making that stylistic choice that is so difficult that many people don't do it or do it badly to, to head hop Head hopping is the point of that scene, and that makes it very central to this first third of the book. That works so well, and we get a sense of who these people are and what they do, and and we learn lots about the we learn about the Atreides and the uh, the people around them, like Kynes, like Boat, like Gurney. And uh, don't we? I feel like like there's a um, a thread that didn't get paid off, and. I, I like that because so I'm thinking about the still suit manufacturer's daughter, right? I don't think she gets a name. She's she finds Jessica finds out that he is there to tempt Paul into sex, or she is there to tempt Paul into sex. Um, mm -hmm. And who who put her into play? Was it the Harkonnens? I'm thinking maybe it's the Harkonnens, but I also thought, well, wait a second. In light of later events, um, doesn't uh, isn't it possible it's the Bene Gesserit? In which case, wouldn't uh, Jessica have known that that girl was Bene Gesserit trained, right? That half the interest. Uh, I mean, what's so amazing about this book, and I I love. I was thinking about this all during this week listening to the book. Uh, by the way, George Goodall, great narrator, um, best version. Yeah. I don't care about uh, the the multicast version. George Goodall does everybody better than everybody else. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I was thinking about how 
how proof against modern times this book is. You know, you know the fact that they're talking, you know, roles for women, <laughs> role, you know, mansplaining. None of that stuff can be in this book because it's it it's just so so the roles for women in this book are strictly defined, right? And they're basically they're they're if not the equal, they're the superiors to everybody in the book. Um, mm-hmm. So is Jessica not sensing that she's a, a Bene Gesserit uh, because the she's so well that the still suit manufacturer's daughter's uh, not Bene Gesserit trained or because she is Bene Gesserit trained, right? So we I think that there's a possibility of we're double we're being double out thought. We never get inside her head. Uh, we see the reactions to you know the minor characters from the eyes of other characters. So sometimes I, I get the sense we might even be getting false information. So a, a good example of this would be when Dr. Yui uh, sort of gives himself away. He has to cover it up with certain things. So when he gives Paul the the uh, Orange Catholic Bible, um, Paul is isn't as suspicious as he should be. And we sort of see that scene from his head a little bit. But it, we're much more suspicious because of the sort of the distraction we see in him uh, when he talks to Jessica. And Jessica doesn't see it. So we, we it's it's not unreliable narrator. It's unreliable um, head hopper. You know, like yeah, there's something the, important going on there. The narrator is pretty reliable. Like um, I, I was thinking about that as well, going back to the style of it. It's mm-hmm. like... I didn't notice it until this read, but it's he ba- he basically makes us like Paul. Like he tells us mm-hmm. what's going to happen at the start of every chapter with these little epigraphs, and we know the future, yeah. but we don't know how, how we're going to get there. So you kind of have these like Pauls, like little valleys and dips, and you can't see the you know what's happening behind that um, little obstacle. But we do know what's going to happen, and it is pretty reliable. Like it's yeah. They keep they keep saying you have a traitor amongst you, and then they tell you who the traitor is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's what's really interesting to me when I was reading it this last time is, um, yeah, we know pretty much everything. You know what the tension uh-huh. is is who knows what, you know, and uh, it's great. Yeah, it's yeah, it's I, like I, it, the it, plot surprise is is revealed to you immediately, and then um, the tension comes from elsewhere. Not Paul said something revelation. on Twitter about uh, spoilers for who who the father of Jessica was, right? Um, mm. And we find out at the end of this book, and that's the big reveal. Um, I don't remember the first time I read it, whether I was surprised to hear that or not. I'm sure I was. Um, but the fact that that's the only surprise, and and the book is so awesome, or at least at this at, to this point in the book, it's so awesome, uh, shows you that spoilers are are not really the important thing. Like the who the hidden murderer is is not really the important thing. We know who the betrayer is the whole way through, and the interest here is is in seeing Jessica doubt uh, Thufer and Thufer doubt, doubt Jessica, and nobody yeah. doubts Gurney. Nobody even considers Gurney. He's just too happy-go-lucky, <laughs> right? Or whatever dour happy-go-lucky he is, um, and they yeah. all say, "No, not Yui." <laughs> Um, well, because of the imperial conditioning, they, they again, can't conceive yeah. that yeah, the, that could be broken. <clears throat> yeah, and that 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 so, assumption, right? That that's the big the big blind spot everybody has, 
is you can't break also, imperial conditioning. Remember that this is uh, in the in the mid '60s, and uh, B.F. Skinner's behaviorism was still hugely popular across mm. America. So to say uh, conditioning, yeah, okay, that's credible. Um, I, I think this is one of the things I was I was puzzling about when I was reading it again this time was for such a fantastic, towering achievement of world building. How come this this isn't boring? How does her make it compelling? And I think you you've nailed part of it right there. It's like a classic suspense um, story where it's not a mystery because we know who it is. It's a question of suspense that well we know who the traitor is, but nobody yeah. else. Oh, Will they find the traitor? Hey, um, I'd like to share something with you guys. Uh, this is like the perfect time to do it. I thought this might like surprise some people, but actually Marissa really uh, brought it up. But uh, Ken Schneer, he's um, a Nebula-nominated uh, short story writer and a friend of mine on Facebook, and he shared with me some insight about uh, Princess Irulan. Uh, which kind of blew my mind, but you guys are already kind of on to it. But if I could just read this, mm -hmm. what he wrote to me. Uh, it He says, The propaganda by Princess Irulan is a device to put the reader into the head of Paul Muad'Dib. The reader's experience of the flow of the story is repeatedly, maddeningly interrupted by these individual paragraphs from the future. Snippets, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> Snippets that tell us things we'd rather not know because we want to experience the story sequentially. But by the end of the first few scenes, we have a strong notion of how the story is going to end <clears throat> because Irulan won't shut up about it. But she's not there. <laughs> she's in the future writing what is obviously propaganda for the emperor Paul is going to become. Mm. Thus, we are unable to experience the story as we live it. We are condemned always to have our minds invaded by extremely clear, not always happy photographs of what is to come. By the time Irland shows up on literally the last page, mm -hmm. we already know what is to become of her and what she will mean for the Empire, which is why she never says a word in that scene. She doesn't have to. But this is exactly Paul's situation. His mind is interrupted by the future. Mm. He can't live his life sequentially because it is invaded by knowing what is to come. He already knows that Irulan is going to be his wife and propagandist long before he meets her. Thus, Herbert, through what I would call an alternative voicing device, or more precisely, the judicious use of found documents, puts the reader squarely in the POV of the protagonist. It's bloody brilliant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, the, the first paragraph, um, I'm going to read the first paragraph because it's one of my favorite paragraphs of all time. A beginning is the sign for taking the most delicate care that the balance is always correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. Now, here, now here's the key third sentence. To begin your study, the life of Muad'Dib, then take care that you first place him in his time, born in the 57th year of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and take the most special care that you locate Muad'Dib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born in Caledon and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as the Dune, is forever his own. Manuel Muad'Dib by the princess. Now, now, I, I, I've always pronounced it Arulian, but apparently I'm wrong about that. But I've always pronounced it Arulian. <laughs> but but it's like, to begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, which, as Matt's friend pointed out, I mean, that we're getting right from the start that this is a propaganda, sanitized sort of look at Paul from, from his future, looking back at the past, and that already sets us in the place that we're 
we're in the future looking backwards on events that have already taken place and already done, which is why we keep seeing all these, like we all know about all these beats about Yui being the traitor and Paul's fate to become the Emperor and everything else, because we are in the space of we're inside of Aurelian's propaganda machine. Yeah. It's like Brian said, it's like, it's not so much tension. It's suspense. It's like, you know, the shit's going to hit the fan. It's just like, when and how is that going to happen? So hard to do. Uh, it is hard to do because if you watch heart to heart, <laughs> they did it exactly the wrong way. You always really? found out who the villain was in the beginning, and then you did not give a shit what happened. After. <laughs> like oh, Baron Harkonnen, ah, um, I, I, I think one of the one of the great things about your friend's uh, observation is that it combines a theme with a storytelling technique, because this theme of predestination. And being able to suss out the future is uh, such a critical one throughout the book. And it becomes central to the second book, not to go too far ahead, but it becomes the climax of the second book. Um, and to have that then be a storytelling technique as well, yeah. that's pretty deep play. Well, you know, even the name of the family speaks mm-hmm. to the prescience. If you look at Atreides, yeah. that's the Greek son of Atreus. Who, yep. That's the family of Agamemnon, and then yep. so I was looking at um, Agamemnon by Aeschylus, which is an old Greek play, and we see I mean, not to give too much away, but we can understand there's a war that goes on, which is very similar to a Trojan War, a big uh, a big upheaval of the power structures of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but Wait, are you giving spoilers for a 2,500 year old story? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. That's what I'm trying to say. That these are the these are the two of the same stories. We're looking at the story of Agamemnon and Menelaus again. Yeah. You know, yeah, we yeah. have the same thing happen. We have we have uh, the great houses, an offspring, yeah. an offspring potentially sacrificed for the greater good, and then we yeah. have a knowing a knowing walk into doom. You know, so it's this. Yes. There's even there's even a simpler level, which in which case that's true, which is if you think about the fact that Herbert composed Dune and Dune Messiah as one giant work, the House of Agamemnon is one that is incredibly tragic and doomed. It's and, the three books too, right? If we look yeah. at yes. Agamemnon as a trilogy, the third book reflects the third play as well. Yes, but I was just thinking that the, the second book, and one of the reasons why Dune Messiah is not as popular is because it's a clear tragedy. Um, that's its yeah. form. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a reversal of the hero's journey, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Dune is a very positive book. It's it's a romance, not in the sense of, of love, but in the sense of you know productive adventure, um, and it ends on a heroic you know theme. Um, but then that gets undone. In fact, it, you know, if as your friend says, we're trapped in uh, Ireland's propaganda machine. I think the first quote that opens Dune Messiah is from a, a dissenter, a dissident, uh, who complains, and a lot yeah. of the quotes that open Dune Messiah. They're being interrogated. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the seeds of, of tragedy are already clearly being sown here in this first book, even though it looks so optimistic and positive. You're absolutely right to mention that. I mean, all these all these names are, are remixes of, of contemporary and historical events. You know, we have the Jesuit as the Jesuits. Uh, we have, I mean, I heard in a radio interview um, uh, the joke Herbert made that the uh, the Gom Jabbar was supposed to be a pun on Abdul Jabbar. Yeah, um, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Yeah, that may or may not be true, but it's it's really cute. I mean, you you, you think about all the uh, 
all the Islamic history. It was a high-handed, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the enemy. That's the joke. It's, it's brilliant. Uh, and, then, and then even things like um, the Landsdraht, the name suggests something from, say, Germany or the Low Countries, which make you, might make you think, say, of uh, all kinds of economic and business history, which is totally appropriate. Yeah, the Hanseatic I mean, League, you know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, which uh, one of Herbert's uh, colleagues, uh, Paul Anderson, was a, a huge fan of. I mean, it's it's this amazing remix of of so much stuff. And again, it's, it's different from uh, from Tolkien because Tolkien's remix is is pretty precise. Yeah, I mean, he's drawing on medieval literature and folklore, uh, but here Herbert is just raiding the planet. You know, just whipping all these things together. Uh, I, I'm hard pressed to think of of any other writer who who has done anything at that scale. Tolkien is the only comparable, really. Uh, I want to point out that it's very Shakespearean too, you know, with the with the plot intrigues and the poisons and the speeches and the soliloquies that happen. Um, yeah. it, it is obviously it's not any particular Shakespeare play, but it is all of them in a sense. Uh, all the um, there's even a little touch of humor here and there. Um, and the characterization, you know, that's the great thing about Shakespeare is even the shitty roles are great roles, right? So uh, thinking about Fade, right, who's barely, barely in this this first part, um, and um, we don't even get a mention of Raban or any anything in the first book of the first book. We've got all these great minor characters. Uh, the uh, who's the the um, Baron's mentat? Peter DeVries, right? So, um, one thing that's different between that, uh, this version and the movie version, and I'm not even sure. I might have seen the movie first, um, and I I will want to talk about that later on. I want to hear. Just wait for the new one. Oh no, no, I'm good with the first one. But I, I, (laughs) Marissa, did you go ahead with your plan to watch the movie? I did. Okay, and what what if Uh, did you go ahead with the drugs uh, while watching the movie? Yeah. Yeah, I had some edibles and watched it. And um, what's the effect? I, so you already I, knew the ending before it happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I've never like I don't know. I was just laughing the whole time and just like what <laughs> the fuck, what the fuck, like with all the bizarre creatures and visuals. That was amazing. Had you read the book first, or or uh, <clears throat> did you watch the movie without reading the book? Because I I think I might have watched the movie first, and I said this is my book, this is my movie. <laughs> no, I read the book first. Okay, uh, I, th- I yeah. think the best thing is to watch the David Lynch movie first because it is so stark, raving bonkers. Yeah, how would you follow it without? I the totally book, got actually? it. I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm here. I got it. Although you, I didn't, I, although I didn't see it, what the, the David Lynch movie inspired me to actually read the book because do you guys remember the magazine Starlog? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So back so back in the eighties, they had they had issues about doing them, looking at these visuals and re- reading these little bits. It's like this looks like a fascinating movie, and a fascinating book. I need to read it. Then the movie appeared and disappeared. Didn't get to see it. I was like, okay, now I have to read the book because this this looks looks like so weird and so up my alley. And so it was. That's so the cool. movie got me to do it, even though I didn't actually read the movie. Read yeah, the actually, movie. I should say as well, my husband, um, he's seen the movie and loves it, and he's never read. The book, and I haven't divorced him yet for that, but <laughs> the, he, he the, loved it. Oh, sorry. The movie got me to read the book, uh, but too. only because Twilight Zone magazine 
talked about the movie many months before the movie came out, and it looked incredible to me. So I, I wanted to read the, the book before the movie came out. Yeah, and I, I think one of the beautiful things about the way that he um, takes all of the new technologies that are in thinking technologies and the sort of tapestries and this and that are not well described. So it's up to the imagination of the reader to create that world for himself. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many great um, concept art websites that just have tons of stuff from Dune and they're completely different other than the still suits mm-hmm. which are beautifully described I have no idea how an ornithopter works I have no idea what those little assassinations tools look like and it was beautiful to see how it was envisioned in this film versus say Jaredowski's concept art that was and, bonkers you want to talk bonkers yeah. that thing's oh, fucking bonkers that's, no, and he didn't even read the book Jaredowski never even read the thing <laughs> right Right. No, that's that's. And by the way, that's a very calm imagining for Adorowski. If you if you want to see him really cut loose, you want to watch The Holy Mountain, which is I mean, The Holy Mountain is one of those great 60s movies that is just so unsprung. I mean, it makes Zardoz look like social realism. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, two, the double feature would probably cause brain damage, I think. Um, <laughs> see, you come back to something you were just saying, which I think is so important, is that uh, Herbert really. This is not a lyrical book, and he also doesn't really describe things in detail. This is um, – I've read just about everything by him, and that's pretty consistent. He uh, he likes to have a word choice here, a little phrase there, and then move on. He, he doesn't describe a lot of the technologies. He's much – Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say I was really surprised by that when I reread it because – in my memory of it, it's so Vivid. rich and yeah. so yeah. And I was really surprised to actually like how little he, like he just does the perfect amount to like spark off your imagination, and you don't really realize how much you're filling in. Yeah. Well, this is this is that, Eric Repkin's idea of transformed language. So you get instead of a plane, you get ornithopter. Yeah. You think ornithopter? How can that? You know, and you get uh, still suit. You can think, all right, it's like a still, like a like an alcohol distillate. All right, and then we move on. Uh, you know, even even the worms it, it are so prosaic in contrast. Yeah, they're dragons, they're just, right? I mean, they're yeah, but, but he describes them with a little bit of detail. But that's not a word that's transformed. It's just worm, and they're giant worm. You know, um, it's it's different from saying dragon, which is you know so so evocative. No, that's the that's uh, the thing is a worm is a dragon, right? And we yeah. don't think of it that way. Uh, but uh, y w r m and Right and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Y- yeah. 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 I just focus. I'm, I'm just I'm just I'm just focused on, on language here. I mean, there's. Uh, and I, I remember him saying how they sounded, and that really stuck in my mind. Yeah. How the worms sounded. Yeah. I mean, one of the yeah. one of the beautiful things there is the way that he sort of bridged that gap between hard sci-fi and his idea of soft sci-fi and how it was more mythic because if you look at the odyssey or the iliad or the aeneid it's the same idea when you have these things they're not described perfectly so it's up to the audience to create them and then you know you hear paul muadib wily odysseus Mm -hmm. you know brave achilles and noble duke leto so you have this connection to a sort of um creative canvas that we're all able to take part in and what makes podcasts like this so important and so <laughs> effective for, for a book? Well, yeah, yeah, we have the epithets. I mean, this is you know yeah. Jesse's yeah. obsession about the you know UA's hair because that's the epithet for him. Uh, you know, Piter is silky. Baron yeah, is he's fat. also effeminate. Uh, Piter's effeminate, which is interesting. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a 
I mean, I've, I've heard some criticism of the book, and maybe one of the ways that it's dated, which is that the, the bad guys are are uh, gender gendered badly. I mean, you know, Harkonnen is a predatory homosexual. Yeah, fighter is effeminate, and these are seen as bad and threatening. Whereas if you look at Paul, his father, and the grandfather, which is very important, uh, those are all hyper, like John Wayne masculine. I mean, they are you know pretty classic. Um, and Andy so. Mann. Yeah, yeah, um, kindly man, right? Um, and that's, um, you know, that, that's an interesting problem. Uh, I mean, I, I read, a, I think it was on either Tor or io9, they had a, a reread of the book, and they had some folks who were reading it for the first time, and some of them said, yeah, I think it's homophobic, it's straight up. Um, you know, I think that's, and that's unpleasant. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it is. I, here's what, here's what I, the way I, I yeah, the, it, but that's not, he's not, he's not a homosexual, he's, He's he's a predator, right? He's he's uh, creeping on his own nephew, um, right? But right, but it's but it's tangling but the also, whole idea that homosexuals are predators, and that's kind of that's, that's very squeaky. Uh, you know, one character does not, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, that's reading into it. Here's what I would say: the Baron's an awesome villain. Uh, he's he, uh, he <laughs> one of my friends. He he sort of aspires to be the Baron. <laughs> <laughs> because he's so <laughs> fucking horrible and mean and 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 awesome, right? I mean, he the the appetites he has. That's the that's the issue. But he's also very very smart. He's got plans within plans, right? And he knows when he's going to have to kill his assassin, right? And he's just about used his usefulness, right? And he's he's surrounded by all these weak ass, terrible characters, and yet somehow gets pretty much what he wants and yeah i don't care i don't care if uh you know i mean if it happened again and again and again and again i mean yeah the harkonnens are fucking assholes and it's not just two equal teams in dispute over something think of even how the 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 they're gonna rape jessica right and that scene where she turns that uh, that's right near the end of this book right where she turns that situation to her own advantage, um, the fact that they want to uh, not waste this sexy lady, um, she says, "Well, you know, do you want my willing cooperation?" And she squirms. Right? She's using what she's got. She's using the training that she's got to get what she wants. I th- I think the Baron came from a line of fucked up family members, right? <laughs> and that. Um, Whoever, uh, whoever seduced um, the Baron in his youth and made Jessica, um, they had a, a, ro- a hard road to hoe there, right? Because he would have been a fucker <laughs> then, um, and now he's still yeah. a fucker. Um, and his proclivities are not even that direction. So whatever voice they used on him or whatever, I, I think that, you know... <laughs> Not everybody's equal, and these are the greatest villains I've ever seen. I mean, honestly, if you look at Darth Vader, what's he got? What's he got going for him? He says, "Hi, you don't know the power of the dark side." Well, yeah, but um, curious. Uh, what was the? There was a great kids movie, uh, Night at the Museum, where uh, the villain gets to confront Vader, and he's like, "What's what's going on here? You got some kind of like bondage gear?" But. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's happening here? I don't get it. It's exactly the same thing, right? He's all if underneath that that helmet, he's all chewy, just like they do him in the movie of uh, Dune, right? He's all covered in sores, and I I love what Lynch does to the to to enhance the horror of the Harkonnens. Um, and the thing is, is they're exactly like the family of Atreides, right? They've got their own master of assassins, right? These right. are not good people on either side. What the difference is, and I think this is the awesome difference, and it comes from, it's the perversion, right? So what makes Lietkind so interested in helping out uh, the Atreides is that they're, they're worried about the people and not worried about the spice. They're worried about the inefficiency of, of wasting water um, and not the gross um, luxuriance of squeezing the leavings for the for the uh, plebs in the streets, right? So that that love of a, of a certain kind of efficiency and morality is what we love, and it's not about you know being gay because obviously um, Piter is not gay. I don't know what he is, but he's not gay. He wanted Jessica for a torture porn or something. I have no idea. But he chooses power over that in the end. Um, and the, he, uh, this is what's so great about the book. Dr. Yui is the bad guy, and we're totally sympathizing with him. Because he wants the only thing that he can he can do is, is try and get revenge, right? I, I love that motivation. I love seeing, you know, the unexpected... And that's that's the greatness of this book. I, I want to connect it in a weird way. So <laughs> over the last, uh, I don't know, six months or so, people have been worried about Russian hacking, right? <laughs> I know you're going to see this as a weird connection. Uh, Russian hacking. Uh, Russians hacked our elections. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and here's why, right? The latest indictment was 12... Uh, 13 Russian trolls uh, out of what's uh, oh, the Internet Research Agency. If you actually look at the the memes that they were using and the the things that they were doing, half the money they spent on Facebook ads and and Twitter were on uh, were after the election. So if they're trying to wreck the the election, spending half the money after doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Look at it closer, and what you find out is actually that company has nothing to do with trying to fuck with the elections. What they have to do with is half the problem I've had with banning people on on Twitter is I get a, a, a message from somebody, and it turns out that it's not a person. It's a bot, and the bot is trying to make me follow them so that they can sell this bot and make money. right? They can sell all the people who follow this bot and make money in a commercial sense. So anybody who follows you, you have a chance of following them, right? And if they favorite your stuff and say something that's vaguely positive, you're more inclined to follow them. Now they take that and monetize it. So what uh, people have been perceiving is that if 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 some Russians connected to Putin, in the sense that there's billionaires in Russia and they're all connected because they all know each other, um, do something it must be cause of it must be cause of uh, a desire to interfere and that's foolish and stupid thinking and it, it's foolish and stupid because it's not supported by any evidence other than 
it came from Russia. Therefore, Russians are our enemies. Therefore, it's an attack. On our, our. So what's so cool is in here, we, we see the inner workings of people's minds in a way that we, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else do it as well or as interestingly as this. Seeing how people are thinking and reacting within the situation to subtle body cues and motivational signals. So why is this person wriggling in, in that way? Why are they fiddling with that little thing? What nervousness... And we see it from both the inside and outside. Dr. Yui shows us if we're paying close attention and we're trained by Herbert so well to pay close attention to his body signals when he's talking to Jessica. We can see that he's distracted. And when he brings up the excuse of my dead wife, um, that's enough to dismiss it. And and it's it's like... You can totally get tricked by propaganda if you do not pay attention to the details and have a healthy, healthy skepticism. Because I don't, I don't know if anybody could have figured out that it was Dr. Yui without more signals, right? They'd have to have more interactions. And it, it makes me think about the backstory. When did Dr. Yui do this? He didn't do it when he signed up with them because he was helping out. But at some point, they got a message to him. And that makes me go right back to this, yeah, this innocuous little thing where the still suit manufacturer's daughter, who doesn't even get a name, is there to seduce Paul, either to kill him or to get him uh, compromising pictures, you know, whatever it is, or to <laughs> secure his seed for another bloodline. As like, what the fuck? That's deep. That's why this book is so good. It's, it is, it's hidden within the text is a way of analyzing reality is like yeah. you cannot absolutely know one thing all you have are signals and evidence but evidence is not a case if the evidence is biased or false or or propaganda and the closer you look at the evidence the, you have to not have i don't know if you guys saw this interview but james risen I know this is weird. I'm going way off track, but James Risen was just did an interview or a, a debate with Glenn Greenwald about what the yeah. facts are on Russia, right? And it was it was like the weirdest thing because Risen is he's cares about the motivation of Gre Greenwald. Like, do you think the Russians hacked us or not? It's like, what does that have to do with anything? I'm looking at the evidence. I can't predict the future. And that's what this book's about. It's like, this is a way of looking at reality. And that's why I think it's so powerful as a, as saying, a book. Okay. I, I, I want to run with that. But are you saying that the reason you made the link to the uh, uh, Russian social media campaign and troll campaign is because dude is trying to teach us to become more skeptical. Yeah, and, we're becoming uh, the Kwisatz Sadarak while we read it, I think. I, 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 yeah. I think of myself ah. as a much smarter person having come away from reading this book. I totally oh. made a note of that um, because I remember that reading this as a teenager. I feel like this book kind of um, helped like form some of my skepticism. 100%. And, like just like primed me to like be a little bit more aware and to look at adults in a different way and to realize there was like all these layers going on that I didn't know about. And I really wanted Paul's superpower and Jessica's superpower. And I was like, you can train to do this. Yeah. <laughs> That's by the way, one of the things I, I hated about the Lynch movie, which I'm really ambivalent about is the, uh, 
it totally missed the whole thing of stress leading to training and all that. And so we had like that weird sonic weapon stuff. <laughs> no, that's in the book too. You just didn't notice it. <laughs> no, I, I think Marissa, you're absolutely right. They, you're, you're what, what do they call the weirding way? How can you not want to be skilled up like Paul? I mean, how many people came away from this book say, man, I want to be like a mentat, you know, yeah. I want to have that power or mm-hmm. I want to have the awesome Benny Jesuit Kung Fu. Or I want to have the uh, Benny Gesserit social power. The, voice. To, you know, uh, yeah. the yeah. thing is, the voice. voice is real, right? Uh, that My mom calls it the teacher voice. <laughs> uh, or the, or the uh, parent voice. And literally, like you, if you're in a classroom and you have the teacher voice, you you own that classroom. If you if you if you're one of those teachers who doesn't have the teacher voice, you're fucked, and you're you're gonna get you're gonna quit. Do you all watch uh, the fantastic American TV show, uh, The Wire? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great achievements of television, it far is. none. But there's there's a bit in the fourth season where uh, the first-time teacher is trying to control his class, right. and they're just running over him. And then the principal walks in and says, all right, and she uses the voice, and they all breathe. That's right. It's, it's, so you want the voice. You want the, you want the weirding way. I mean, you know, you think, okay, so Lucius Secundus and, and Arrakis – Oh my God! What terrible places to live! That's so fascinating. And I mean, how I, I could be that strong? I could be that skilled? You know, like when we first okay, Jesse. If I could circle back, you you mentioned the banquet scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, and it reminds me as well of the scene when we first see a Fremen. Before that, when we have a meeting of uh, the Duke's uh, team, and the Fremen walks in. Remember that and he spits at the table, and everyone mm-hmm. freaks out. But Still when dark. we first see the, yeah. Yeah, when we first see him, it is still, that's right. When we first see him, he's like a superhero. His voice is strong and resonant. He's powerful. Everyone moves around him. I mean, ow, who doesn't want to be that? Right? I mean, this is, but again, this is why I think the book is so sneaky and devilish because you're all encouraged to be a superhuman, but Herbert's going to pull that out from under you mm-hmm. because he wants to criticize that. You know, and, and coming in the 60s, when you think, okay, you know, you have rock stars becoming superstars. We also have the uh, the martyrdom of political leaders in the United States, mm. you know, of two Kennedy brothers, of Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X, and so on. Um, I mean, to criticize that, oh, that's sneaky, you know. Oh, I want to be like, maybe I don't want to be like that. Maybe there's something wrong. What a what a sophisticated, slippery book. I mean, you can get away with things like all those quotes. Um, what's the one? It's like halfway through, which is, uh, Modem says there should be a science of pain. Is it? Mm-hmm. Or discomfort? Um, and you think, okay, what a sadist. No, no, no. He's, he's being really smart. And he's trying to train you to cope with Russian trolls and Baron Harkonnen, <laughs> your 12th grade teacher. And, you know, Do you want to live out your life in a pain amplifier? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Life's already painful. I think as well, this, um, this book uh, priming your... Um, I don't know, I guess your skepticism or your the way that you can read these people. I feel like reading this was kind of similar to the first time I took LSD and hallucinogens, and it brings it back to that, like, how much this book is, like, a, is related to, like, magic mushrooms and stuff because um, you kind of feel that, like, sh- you see those extra layers of, like, all the things that you're told that are bullshit and all the ways to be a little bit more skeptical and to, like, question a little bit more. And, um, yeah, I feel like this book just totally primed me for that stuff. Uh, and it is like a, a mushroom trip or something. 
Yeah, we put this right in the middle of the 60s again, right? Yeah. That's so, you know, thinking about the, is it because the book gives you a sense of the experience of hallucinogens or other mind altering substances, or is it because the book is about their, their social and personal impact? Yeah, I think it's more that thing of, um, like Jesse was saying about that scene at the table where you realize there's like layers going on underneath and not to have that kind of superficial view of everything, which is why a lot of people who take mushrooms like go way too deep and think there's like this big collective unconscious and mm-hmm. which is kind of in this book as well. And well, I mean, it's a lot in this book. Um, I think they're yeah. tapped into these greater truths and stuff like that's a little bit yeah. too deep. But and I think it what? does open up that like reading people a little bit more. Say, Matt? One of the most common things that I hear from people who have taken mushrooms is everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. You know? All the and mushrooms are under, underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's a big part of it. The, the ecology and the ecosystem of the social, political, religious, and environmental aspect of Arrakis and the greater universe, right? There is this interconnectedness in the Dune universe, and that's part of what makes it such a crazy trip. And even that tapping into the past consciousnesses and stuff of the the being Jesuits. The Jungian Jungian, uh, racial memory, right? And I love that we're set up for it in this book, right? When when the Bene Gesserit witch, one of the best characters in science fiction, I think, um, what is the Reverend Gaius Helen Mohiam? <laughs> Gaius yep. Helen Mohiam makes me think she's, and the way she's characterized, uh, I think of her as, um, as the wife of uh, Augustus. What's her name? Livia. 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 You know, who's always with the poisons, and <laughs> at least in the in the I Claudius. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. She, yeah. She's fantastic. And she's uh, and she. Uh, wait, and, is that and the Luther same actress? Scheming. Oh, I'm thinking about it. It's not. CM, in the movie, yes, it's CM Phillips. It's the same. Wow. Actress. Okay, maybe that's my connection. But seriously, I never, I never seriously, caught that. Seriously, yeah, no, yes. makes sense, that's right? Fantastic. Wow. Um, she's uh, she's just <laughs> such a great character. She's she's got her motivations, right? And she, and she says right at the beginning there, I, I love. Uh, Paul says you treat her as a common serving wench. And she says, well, she was my serving wench <laughs> for years. Um, but she wasn't man, just serving man. water. She was there learning in the same way that Paul was learning, I think. Right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, um, it's an amazing little thing. It's like, I think that the whole backs, uh, fuck, this is why I'm so upset about Herbert and, and uh, Anderson doing all those sequel books and prequel books is because they're mining goodness i was even thinking uh, we lost scott i think but uh, i i noted when the this book came out we just kept saying the whole name of the book over and over again do you remember anderson after he did a bunch of these herbert books he did a book called hellhole i read that and and i kept uh, i'd say hellhole <laughs> from that uh song i i I mean, I mean, I, re- I read Hellhole, and it feels like okay. It's Seleucus Secundus and Dune, except he didn't put it in the universe, right? Yeah, it it feels it feels like he took the ideas from Dune totally. and decided to make his own huh. universe. And the thing is, I mean, it's, it's, that's it, it, awesome. We never we never see it in this book, right? We never see Seleucus Secundus, but we do see the result of it. And I love just 
he's so good at characterization when he throws throws that um that Mosarda car in there, right? He he's like, fuck you, Baron. I'm I'm getting my facts. I'm not leaving. Give me the facts. And the Baron's like stumbling around trying to cover for time and hope that he doesn't you know, report to the Emperor all the horrible things that he's doing. That's so good. I okay, okay so I want I want I'm bring up something different. I mean, we we we've talked a lot about how it mines all sorts of ideas, and it's Mary's Heights hard science fiction with soft science fiction. I've had a theory for a while that Spoon is really just a, I mean, with 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 some trappings of science fiction, Spoon is just really a fat fantasy novel. Yeah, he, he got. I mean, I mean because I mean all all. I mean, the, the little technology we get is kind of hand-waved, and we don't see a lot of detail. The, the technology is almost designed that we get sword fights and personal interactions. Yep. We get noble houses, feuding families, and, 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 and um, social structures that are, that are deeply evocative of Middle Ages and fantasy conventions. We have magical powers. I mean, they're not called magical powers, but we have magical powers, and they... And a hero's journey of it, the son, the son, the son of a royal fam, of a royal family that is beaten down and then comes back to save the day. It's really just a fantasy novel with some science fiction tropes, kind of like Star Wars is fantasy with some science fiction tropes. Yep. And but I, I love it all the same for it. I, I realize, and and there there is some science fiction we found here, especially with the ecology, but it's really. It's really much more on the fantasy spectrum than the science fiction spectrum. That, I was Lots describing people, it yesterday, and that's I said this is basically a, a fantasy book with in, in feeling, um, strongly, but with a science fiction uh, discipline. When I think when I think about uh, the blur between the two, I think about Star Wars, where the science makes absolutely no yeah. sense, and like mm-hmm. and the, the and magic group, doesn't make any sense either. Well, but magic at least has a certain uh, uh, consistency to it, um, and it, there's, a, there's a genre recognition of it. I mean, you don't have Carrie Fisher flying through space. Why? Because. You know, <laughs> oh, why can't we? <laughs> the reason, the reason I, dis- I disagree, Paul, is is in part because there is um, this draws on so many science fiction tools, everything from from transformed language to the impact of of technology. But also because Herbert's doing some stuff that was relatively new at the time uh, in science fiction itself. So we have uh, social science fiction. Uh, I mean, Le Guin is working at the same time, and she's drawing heavily on anthropology. Remember her parents, right? Her great anthropologists. Uh-huh. And Herbert's doing this as well. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about the adaptations too much. Uh, one of the things I liked about the Sci-Fi Channel version was that they cast people from different nations to be the different uh, uh, political units. So the Fremen were all cast from Central Europe. The uh, uh, the uh, Atreides were all cast from California. The Arconans <laughs> were all cast from somewhere else. And it was really nice. It actually, I mean, like the uh, Black Panther movie, for example, where all the five different parts of Wakanda all have a different look and feel. Um, Herbert was really exploring that. So we have, we have the detailed anthropology of the Fremen as well as of the Imperium. Um, and that's something which you don't really get in fantasy, um, because here we're actually drawing on the science, the social science of anthropology. Uh, and I think that's crucial. On top of that, we have, in many ways, the first great ecological novel. 
And the ecological, what's fascinating is, is how we have a serious attempt to build a scientific ecology. I mean, there's no, there's no fantasy here. We don't have, that's why I was, I was poking at your, at your evocation of dragons, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are animals and how they work. Uh, and we have a whole ecosystem built in, which is actually a mystery, uh, which is progressively resolved as we learn different things as we go. Uh, you know, where the spices come from and all of that. Uh, and you don't, you don't, there's no sense of the fantastic in them. We don't have that, that twist of, well, they have a, a miracle happens or a god is involved or a ghost. Instead, it's all, it's all uh, like they say in, the, in uh, uh, the, the Star Wars Destination, quant stuff. I mean, this is all you know, really solid, uh, really solid science. On top of that, the, the exploration of politics and, uh, and society is all so cold-eyed. It's it's all very very much the real politics. In, yeah, it's, it's it's political science in, in a real sense, or uh, in, in a way that we normally don't get. I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to, to your to your charge. It reminds me a bit of. Uh, do we all know Michael Moorcock's great uh, slam at the fantasy start? What's it called? The uh, Starship Stormtroopers, I think. <laughs> no, I haven't read Where that. He, oh, no, I've heard of it. Haven't read it. It's actually Heinlein, right? No, he he makes he's making fun of, of Tolkien as his main target, uh, and he points out things like you know it's it's all black and white. There's no real ambiguity, um, and Moorcock was a you know obviously a skilled practitioner of, of writing fantasy, so he had chops to do this. Um, and I, I feel that when I'm when I'm reading this, that the, the Atreides are are clearly so good. The Harkonnens are clearly so evil. Morally, um, though, that's that's it's not like see it's not. What makes Mordor so evil is a completely different kind of evil than the evil that we get in here, right? So it's the corruption yes. and the like. So there's a uh, a sense that when Gurney Halleck gets too old or he gets so too disabled, they won't dispose of him. They'll give him a room in the castle, and then it's a, right. a servant. And uh, you know, when Thufir's too old, they're not gonna chuck him out and you know feed him into the recycling bin. They're gonna, they're right. gonna. Whereas, it's it's a moral difference, right? And so the evil's yeah. real, and and the that's the opposite of fantasy. And I mean, honestly, I don't even like fantasy novels generally at all, except for the Lord of the Rings because it's so it's so deep in scope. And to me, all of the idea of of this being a fantasy book are undercut by by how rigorous it is with its thinking and in general what i find with fat fantasy novels as i guess people call them is that they're they're opposite of rigorous thinking it's it's they they want to have the scenes but they don't care about the background to get there so the the road goes ever on and there's trees on the road but we never get a description of the genus of that tree or the the right. healing properties of 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 that tree and why it's important to keep the so uh, in the fellowship of the ring we do get quite a lot of details about walking we absolutely do and as we go along the way we learn all sorts of things about about the journey right so that the landscape is a walking tour of england in a certain sense i, I do want to come back paul i do want to come back to to you in our following up episode because we're only talking about the first third of the book for me the greatest uh connection to fantasy is how the quizzets haderach actually works 
because that's kind of bonkers science. Um, you know, the whole gene memory and activating all of that. But we only get that fully fleshed out in the last third of the book. Am I right? And in the sequel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not even going to go the sequel, but I'm just thinking he has to you know, take the water of life. But now we're talking about hallucinogens, and now we're going into the whole, I mean, now he's really diving into it. And we get that ability to tap the genetic memory of the human race. And, okay, yeah, I mean, the more I think about that, the more insane that seems. Um, it's a cool idea, um, but it doesn't draw on a lot of science from the 1960s. And do you guys know the, the massive? Do you know the Mass Effect game, the computer yep. games? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Marissa, <laughs> love them. To death. I haven't played them. Yeah. Oh, Marissa, you, they're so they're long. The, <laughs> That's yeah, cool. <laughs> made by people who clearly love science fiction, and oh, cool. they're a love letter to, to SF. They're beautiful to look at. Um, the very, very end of the third game is a disaster. So, but you've got easily sixty hours before that. But one of the I'm things. I'm in. You should definitely do it. I, I recommend it. <laughs> one, one of the things about it is they have what people will call space magic. Uh, mm. They have a, People have a certain power that's never explained and how it works. And, you know, I think, oh, my God, it's probably mitochondrias or something stupid. Um, but it, it's, it's a cool attribute to play. Uh, but then that, that brings us back to fantasy. So I, I wonder, Paul diving deep into the genetic memory of the human race. Uh, but I'll, I'll save that for, for the next episode mm-hmm. when we talk about it. But wouldn't that have been around the time this was written that hallucinogens and stuff probably Uh Say that again, yeah. Marissa. Can you still hear me? Yeah, you're just cutting out a bit. Ah, yeah. So there might have been like a, a hint of science in those ideas. Yeah, I, I think I think he's he he took some mushrooms. He totally had the experience. Everything's connected, man. I can travel through the stars. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, he sort of worked it out and combined it with his his interest in ecology, and they they are connected. And everything is connected. That's the thing, right? Um, but uh, I can read your mind, man. Is only uh, part of you know. It, it's it's basically I think. He's really tapping into something, and he's sort of just tweaking it a bit and saying it's we're going to able to go a little farther. So when Paul has a dream of Chani, no mention of her name in this part of the book, uh, but she he says, uh, and she will yeah. call me Usul, right? Or or maybe I don't know who Usul. Oh, tell me of your homeworld, Usul. And uh, but I'm not from Usul. Oh, maybe it's my name. I just realized that he says. <laughs> yeah, um, it's so good. He also says uh, right when he has the second waking dream, right at the end of this book, um, he says to his mom while he's while they're in the tent together. That's kind of a nice scene. <laughs> he says, "Mom, I just had a waking dream, and they're going to call me Muadib, right?" And th- so th- that's bullshit. No, <laughs> that's not science. Um, mm-hmm. But it does fit into a human <clears throat> tradition of prophecy. And I think um, we're not – I don't think that the text of this of this book, the, the stuff in between the Irulan comments, are um, supposed to be a novelization of real events by some anonymous author in this future history. I think rather this is supposed to be uh, what actually happened. Um, and, and if that's true, then the, those little future events 
are either being fudged and not they're not science because I, I don't think uh, obviously we can't do genetic memory in this uh, I, I think it's fairly obvious we can't do genetic memory in in a way so when we do see Duncan Idaho the brief appearance of drunken Duncan Idaho um, yep. if his gola in future future installments has memories of him after a certain point in his life that makes no fucking sense and that's not science right but if if they uh you know have a cortical stack for him somewhere that they didn't mention it's fine <laughs> nice also car reference right uh, the thing is is he's right on the borderland between fantasy and science but he absolutely is pointing to real things in science i think and the magic mushrooms thing totally there's something going on there it is tapping into into uh brain chemistry in a way that gives you senses of things even if those senses are not real right mm-hmm. okay I, i'll buy the idea of, of some kind of advanced mental training to better understand and appreciate your dreams i mean that's yes. that's not wild absolutely you can, everyone can do that it's it's called the uh, lucid dreaming it doesn't take right. that much and it it's absolutely fun completely useless <laughs> but, let me, but let me but but that's what makes this different. And, the, and then Paul, maybe I, I need to I need to offer another another concession to you, which is that this the prophetic dream of of uh, the prophetic dreams that Paul has, um, you know, unless unless his mother is being extra sneaky somehow, um, that's pure fantasy. Yep. I mean, you know, tell me of your waters of uh, tell me of the waters of your home or Usul, or I mean, they will call me. I mean, that's completely out of nowhere. Um, that's and that comes completely true. I mean, later later in the book and, and in the sequel, there are other reasons for that that get described. But but this is pure like in a great tradition of fantasy. So I, I'd say and you're it, right. And what's that. so cool is it it's working against the missiona protectiva, right? It's yeah. everything there yeah. is. We've got this plan and we've got it all going, and and it makes you think about how how the Bible works and how. You know, they've got this prophecy. This guy named Jesus is coming. Uh, wait, what about Elijah? Never mind about him. <laughs> Backwards and forwards. Um, you know, and the prophecy that Jesus will return. Right? It was, well, who's going around spreading that? Actual people. Right? The reason we lost Scott is actual nuns came and took him. Right. <laughs> like, Betty Jesser took Scott. Sorry, literally Scott. came and t- took him away. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if they had a bus or what but like, he's the, gone the, the, we lost him because you know the proselytizing must continue or, or whatever they're doing i have no idea see i just i just see this uh the fantasy elements as part of the zeitgeist of science fiction in the 1960s mm. the the new wave authors were coming in yeah. trying to change things up it doesn't feel anything like the engineering science fiction of 10 or 20 years before that Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Arthur C. Clarke with the nine billion names of God, although I think that's the 1950s, yeah. uh, or even the star. Um, uh, Larry Niven with his magical hull that's indestructible. That's pure fantasy. I think you're, you, I, I thought you were talking about, say, Zelazny. Zelazny, yeah. Light or, uh, I mean, a lot of, or sure, you know, sure. when Gene Wolfe starts writing, um, and uh, and Phil Dick, of course, going great guns. 
Who's right. Playing. I mean, he uses drugs to do anything. In <laughs> Flow My Tears, the policeman said one yeah. person takes a drug and it changes reality for everybody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's exactly what happens in this book, right? <laughs> we won't talk yes. about what happens later, but that's exactly what it nice. is. Well, I think I, I think I we think should wrap up fairly soon, just because in case anybody needs to go. But um, yeah, go, go for it. Um, uh, we'll go for it. So I was going to say that I think a a good way to look at his dream about Chani is sort of like Athena visiting Odysseus's son Telemachus, mm. or any incantation to the Muses that mm. says, "Hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm your little chorus." And just to quickly jump to the fourth book. Just for the metaphor of uh, a bowstring being drawn and released, like a Nietzschean kind of idea of yes. here's your tension and then there's your release. And and to go back to the point of the departure from that hard engineering sci-fi, he, he literally mentions it on like the fourth page when he talks about the Butlerian Jihad, when he's like, okay, machines are done now. We're, we're done with that. Now we're going to talk about human machines and... Uh, and our our magic, our engineering, our our the fiction aspect of our science is basically the Bene Gesserit focusness, focused consciousness. You know, focused consciousness by choice. And when she's talking about um, animals versus humans with the Gom Jabbar mm, and the Ba, that is so right? important. This is this is, and this this goes right back to Doctor Yue as well. When when you have to think, okay, well. For him as a human being, what choice does he have? Like, his choice is between love and duty, and he can overcome his imperial conditioning because of love, because of that which is more human inside of him than his mechanical duty toward some, you know, structure that's been created. And I think the, for me, like an aspect of of the fantasy versus sci-fi in it is that fantasy kind of strips away the ability to have choice. Mm. So Frodo, like he does have the initial choice. He says, "Yes, I'm going to take the ring," and then then it's done. That's what he's going to do. But Paul, he is he's had this burden imposed on him, and then he's got to make a series of choices that he knows he knows there are these choices ahead of him and everyone else knows all the all the different machinations that could come about but it's about them choosing these direct ones so it's sort of like a fantasy of international relations in the 20th century you know so in in this way that's why i would that's how i would kind of differentiate it from lord of the rings where Tolkien's trying to make a mythology for ancient Britain, but Herbert is sort of mythologizing the whole state of the world mm-hmm. at that point in time. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't and, even and think. Allowing- I think Tolkien's trying to leave the world. He, whereas Dune is trying to describe our world in a certain sense. And yeah, um, Tolkien is saying, "Fuck this world. Let's go live in fantasy world," and and yeah, and we love yeah. going with him, right? But oh, his characterization of. Uh, I mean, this is my big problem: is is those orcs? They really don't have any motivation. They're they're just evil. And when, you know, and they're not. That's they're 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 non-white. And uh, yeah, and, and they're and they're ultimately killable, right? It's like 
Noble. They're, they're like droids, just this white mountain. I yeah. love that there's, I even changed my Twitter name recently to our description, right? You know, everybody's loves coffee, cats, and whatever. I was <laughs> like, mine is, uh, is Thufers from the movie, which is uh, once the master of assassins for a noble house, now reduced to milking a cat. <laughs> Where's, I'm looking at a cat to live, not just for fun. Um, the the whole um, the whole um, feeling of this book is uh, fuck this world we live in is shit. Well, there's we have some tools to deal with it. And Tolkien's more like um, fuck this world is kind of shitty. Let's leave it. <laughs> Let's go live in in Oxford and 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 take nice walks and smoke pipes. Um, this world is, you know, for Herbert's giving us a whole bunch of tools yes. to to set our world. Right. So ultimately, it's a it's a pedagogical book. It is a training manual. Yeah. 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 And that's how it feels as well. I think when, especially if you read it when you're young, mm-hmm. like it feels like you're tapping into something like that. You're getting that I tried, training. I tried reading the uh, reading it out loud to my son when he was really young, and I, I had to back away because I realized it was it was overwhelming. Um, of course, reading to him when he was seven, that was probably too. Yeah. That's a little young. Um, oh, but, it was uh, the point in, uh, there's a point in the book, in this book where uh, he says, he says, and Thufer thinks you can, you can uh, become a mentat. And Paul's saying, but you have to start that really early. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I get it now. Yeah. It's all coming together. There's so many scenes where it's all coming together, right? It's like, Ah, points of realization. That's what happens yeah. over and over, and that's the drugs too, right, Marissa? Right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, my mind blown. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like good times. science fiction like this is exactly the same as as taking a good trip. But this is another thing. Um, when I was reading it as a kid, is also I remember this is the first time that I really thought about my parents dying. Mm. Like I hadn't. It was wow. so I hadn't really like thought about mortality and stuff that much then and reading this and seeing your parents as humans as mm. Paul does and, yeah, like starts as, to see their flaws and, and that they can die and, and they don't like, know oh. everything you know right that's yeah that's yeah. something they're, that was a human, big yeah. realization too later with Jessica arguing well what are we doing uh, this is I mean this is um, you know one of the things that I'm reading the, uh, the analog serial version thank you very much for, I, for I think there's it. some problems with it being out of order later on but is, but that's that's okay. I'm, 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 my, it, it works for my my badly deranged brain. Yep. But the um, uh, one of the things that struck me, Marissa, was that um, you know it, if you look at it, try and look at it for the first time, you see we've got the heroes set up, and the heroes are completely wiped out. I mean, they're they're all you know, UA's gone, Lado's gone, the whole yeah. The first captured, yeah, yeah, the trap is sprung and and it works. I mean, that's it, and you've got Jessica and Paul on the run. That's all that's left. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus, that's it's like you know, it's like pain it, it, you get in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf gets killed. Yep. Uh, apparently, I mean, you're, yeah. well, how we feel at the end of the Last Jedi, where uh, where, where, the, where the, the alliance is now down to a few people on the Millennium Falcon. I uh, I actually felt great relief at the end of the Last Jedi <laughs> because we did That's you're from the dark side, though, right? I, I I I am, but but you know it's 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 really horrifying. And uh, Marissa, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is uh, what again? What a what a 
maybe this is a bit more like the beginning of Lord of the Rings, which transitions mm-hmm. from the Hobbit to the adult world, in which you know maybe Dune is about that. Well, they just you they just left uh, yeah. uh, what they crossed the Brandywine and they're they're marching through the uh, the mushroom fields, right? The far, farmer Maggot's farm. Well, I'm being marched off right now. I'm gonna have to go, friends. But um, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. We will coordinate for a future second book in the first book of Dune. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. In the dining hall of the Arrokeen Great House, suspenser lamps had been lighted against the early dark. They cast their yellow glows upward onto the black bull's head with its bloody horns and onto the darkly glistening oil painting of the old duke. Beneath these talismans, white linen shone around the burnished reflections of the Atreides silver, which had been placed in precise arrangements along the great table, little archipelagos of service, waiting beside crystal glasses, each setting squared off before a heavy wooden chair. The classic central chandelier remained unlighted and its chain twisted upward into shadows where the mechanism of the poison snooper had been concealed. Pausing in the doorway to inspect the arrangements, the Duke thought about the poison snooper and what it signified in his society. All of a pattern, he thought, you can plumb us by our language, the precise and delicate delineations for ways to administer treacherous death. Will someone try Chowmerky tonight, poison in the drink, or will it be Chowmas, poison in the food? He shook his head. Beside each plate on the long table stood a flagon of water. There was enough water along the table, the Duke estimated, to keep a poor Arakeen family for more than a year. Flanking the doorway in which he stood were broad laving basins of ornate yellow and green tile. Each basin had its rack of towels. It was the custom, the housekeeper had explained, for guests as they entered to dip their hands ceremoniously into a basin, slop several cups of water onto the floor, dry their hands on a towel, and fling the towel into the growing puddle at the door. After the dinner, beggars gathered outside to get the water squeezings from the towels. How typical of a Harkonnen thief, the Duke thought, every degradation of the spirit that can be conceived. He took a deep breath, feeling rage tighten his stomach. The custom stops here, he muttered. He saw a serving woman, one of the old and gnarled ones the housekeeper had recommended, hovering at the doorway from the kitchen across from him. The duke signaled with upraised hand. She moved out of the shadows, scurried around the table toward him, and he noted the leathery face, the blue within blue eyes. My lord wishes. She kept her head bowed, eyes shielded. He gestured. Have these basins and towels removed. But, noble-born, she looked up, mouth gaping. I know the custom, he barked. Take these basins to the front door. While we're eating, and until we've finished... Each beggar who calls may have a full cup of water. Understood? Her leathery face displayed a twisting of emotions, dismay, anger. With sudden insight, Leto realized she must have planned, 
to sell the water squeezings from the foot-trampled towels, wringing a few coppers from the wretches who came to the door. Perhaps that also was custom. His face clouded, and he growled, I'm posting a guard to see that my orders are carried out to the letter. He whirled, strode back down the passage to the great hall. Memories rolled in his mind like the toothless mutterings of old women. He remembered open water and waves, days of grass instead of sand, dazed summers that had whipped past him like windstorm leaves. All gone. I'm getting old, he thought. I felt the cold hand of my mortality, and in what? An old woman's greed. In the great hall, the Lady Jessica was the center of a mixed group standing in front of the fireplace. An open blaze crackled there, casting flickers of orange light onto jewels and laces and costly fabrics. He recognized in the group a stillsuit manufacturer down from Carthage, an electronics equipment importer, a weather shipper whose summer mansion was near his polar cap factory, a representative of the Guild Bank, lean and remote, that one, a dealer in replacement parts for spice mining equipment, a thin and hard-faced woman whose escort service for off-planet visitors reputedly operated as cover for various smuggling, spying, and blackmail operations. Most of the women in the hall seemed cast from a specific type, decorative, precisely turned out, an odd mingling of untouchable sensuousness. Even without her position as hostess, Jessica would have dominated the group, he thought. She wore no jewelry and had chosen warm colors, a long dress, almost the shade of the open blaze, and an earth-brown band around her bronzed hair. He realized she had done this to taunt him subtly, a reproof against his recent pose of coldness. She was well aware that he liked her best in these shades, that he saw her as a rustling of warm colors. Nearby, more an outflanker than a member of the troupe, stood Duncan Idaho in glittering dress uniform, flat face unreadable, the curling black hair neatly combed. He had been summoned back from the Fremen and had his orders from Hawat. Under pretext of guarding her, you will keep the Lady Jessica under constant surveillance. The Duke glanced around the room. There was Paul in the corner, surrounded by a fawning group of the younger Arakeen Riches, and aloof among them three officers of the house troop. The Duke took particular note of the young women. What a catch a ducal heir would make. But Paul was treating all equally with an air of reserved nobility. He'll wear the title well, the Duke thought, and realized with a sudden chill that this was another death thought. Paul saw his father in the doorway, avoided his eyes. He looked around at the clusterings of guests, the jeweled hands clutching drinks, and the unobtrusive inspections with tiny remote-cast snoopers. Seeing all the chattering faces, Paul was suddenly repelled by them. They were cheap masks, locked on festering thoughts, voices gabbling to drown out the loud silence in every breast. I'm in a sour mood, he thought, and wondered what Gurney would say to that. He knew his mood's source. He hadn't wanted to attend this function, but his father had been firm. You have a place, a position to uphold. You're old enough to do this. You're almost a man. Paul saw his father emerge from the doorway, inspect the room, then cross to the group around the Lady Jessica. 
As Leto approached Jessica's group, the water shipper was asking, Is it true the Duke will put in weather control? From behind the man, the Duke said, We haven't gone that far in our thinking, sir. The man turned, exposing a bland, round face, darkly tanned. Ah, the Duke, he said, we missed you. Leto glanced at Jessica. A thing needed doing. He returned his attention to the water shipper, explained what he had ordered for the laving basins, adding, As far as I'm concerned, the old custom ends now. Is this a ducal order, my lord? the man asked. I leave that to your own, uh, conscience, the duke said. He turned, noting kinds come up to the group. One of the women said, I think it's a very generous gesture giving water to the... Someone shushed her. The duke looked at Kynes, noting that the planetologist wore an old-style dark brown uniform with epaulettes of the imperial civil servant and a tiny gold teardrop of rank at his collar. The water shipper asked in an angry voice, Does the duke imply criticism of our custom? This custom has been changed, Leto said. He nodded to Kynes, marked the frown on Jessica's face, thought, A frown does not become her but it'll increase rumors of friction between us. With the Duke's permission, the water shipper said, I'd like to inquire further about customs. Leto heard the sudden oily tone in the man's voice, noted the watchful silence in this group, the way heads were beginning to turn toward them around the room. Isn't it almost time for dinner, Jessica asked. But our guest has some questions, Leto said, and he looked at the water shipper, seeing a round-faced man with large eyes and thick lips, recalling Hawat's memorandum. And this water shipper is a man to watch, Lingar Butte. Remember the name. The Harkonnens used him, but never fully controlled him. Water customs are so interesting, Butte said, and there was a smile on his face. I'm curious what you intend about the conservatory attached to this house. Continue flaunting it in the people's faces, my lord. Leto held his anger in check, staring at the man. Thoughts raced through his mind. It had taken bravery to challenge him in his own ducal castle, especially since they now had Butte's signature over a contract of allegiance. The action had taken, also, a knowledge of personal power. Water was indeed power here. If water facilities were mined, for instance, ready to be destroyed at a signal, the man looked capable of such a thing. Destruction of water facilities might well destroy Arrakis. That could well have been the club this butte held over the Harkonnens. My lord the Duke and I have other plans for our conservatory, Jessica said. She smiled at Leto. We intend to keep it, certainly, but only to hold it in trust for the people of Arrakis. It is our dream that someday the climate of Arrakis may be changed sufficiently to grow such plants anywhere in the open. Bless her, Leto thought. Let our water shipper chew on that. Your interest in water and weather control is obvious, the Duke said. I'd advise you to diversify your holdings. One day... Water will not be a entity on Arrakis. And he thought, Hawat must redouble his efforts at infiltrating this Butte's organization, and we must start on standby water facilities at once. No man is going to hold a club over my head. 
Bute nodded, the smile still on his face. A commendable dream, my lord. He withdrew a pace. Leto's attention was caught by the ex's face. The man was staring at Jessica. He appeared transfigured like a man in love or caught in a religious trance. Kine's thoughts were overwhelmed at last by the words of prophecy. And they shall share your most precious dream. He spoke directly to Jessica. Do you bring the shortening of the way? Ah, Dr. Kynes, the water shipper said. You've come in from tramping around with your mobs of Fremen. How gracious of you. Kynes passed an unreadable glance across Butte, said, It is said in the desert that possession of water in great amount can inflict a man with fatal carelessness. They have many strange sayings in the desert, Butte said, but his voice betrayed uneasiness. Jessica crossed to Leto, slipped her hand under his arm to gain a moment in which to calm herself. Kynes had said, The shortening of the way. In the old tongue, the phrase translated as Kwisatz Havrak. The planetologist's odd questions seemed to have gone unnoticed by the others, and now Kynes was bending over one of the consort women, listening to a low-voiced coquetry. Kwisatz Havrak, Jessica thought. Did our Missionaria Protectiva plant that legend here, too? The thought fanned her secret hope for Paul. He could be the Kwisatz Haderach. He could be. The Guild Bank representative had fallen into conversation with the water shipper, and Butte's voice lifted above the renewed hum of conversations. Many people have sought to change Arrakis. The Duke saw how the words seemed to pierce Kynes, jerking the planetologist upright and away from the flirting woman. Into the sudden silence, a house trooper in uniform of a footman cleared his throat behind Leto, said, Dinner is served, my lord. The duke directed a questioning glance down at Jessica. The custom here is for host and hostess to follow their guests to table, she said, and smiled. Shall we change that one, too, my lord? He spoke coldly. That seems a goodly custom. We shall let it stand for now. The illusion that I suspect her of treachery must be maintained, he thought. He glanced at the guests filing past them. Who among you believes this lie? Jessica, sensing his remoteness, wondered at it as she had done frequently the past week. He acts like a man struggling with himself, she thought. Is it because I moved so swiftly setting up this dinner party? Yet he knows how important it is that we begin to mix our officers and men with the locals on a social plane. We are father and mother surrogate to them all. Nothing impresses that fact more firmly than this sort of social sharing. Leto, watching the guests file past, recalled what Thufir Hawit had said when informed of the affair. Sire, I forbid it! A grim smile touched the Duke's mouth. What a scene that had been. And when the Duke had remained adamant about attending the dinner, Howard had shaken his head. I have bad feelings about this, my lord, he'd said. Things move too swiftly on Arrakis. That's not like the Harkonnens. Not like them at all. Paul passed his father, escorting a young woman half a head taller than himself. He shot a sour glance at his father, nodded at something the young woman said. Uh, her father manufactures still suits, Jessica said. I'm told uh, that only a fool would be caught in the deep desert wearing one of that man's suits. 
Who's the man with the scarred face ahead of Paul, the Duke asked. I don't place him. A late addition to the list, she whispered. Gurney arranged the invitation. Smuggler. Gurney arranged? At my request. It was cleared with Howat, although I thought Howat was a little stiff about it. The smugglers called Tuek, Esmar Tuek. He's a power among his kind. They all know him here. He's dined at many of the houses. Why is he here? Everyone here will ask that question, she said. Tuik will sow doubt and suspicion just by his presence. He'll also serve notice that you're prepared to back up your orders against graft by enforcement from the smuggler's end as well. This was the point Howard appeared to like. I'm not sure I like it. He nodded to a passing couple, saw only a few of their guests remained to precede them. Why didn't you invite some Fremen? There's kinds, she said. Yes, there's kinds, he said. Have you arranged any other little surprises for me? He led her into step behind the procession. All is most conventional, she said. And she thought, my darling, can't you see that this smuggler controls fast ships, that he can be bribed? We must have a way out, a door of escape from Arrakis if all else fails us here. As they emerged into the dining hall, she disengaged her arm, allowed Leto to seat her. He strode to his end of the table. A footman held his chair for him. The others settled with a swishing of fabrics, a scraping of chairs, but the Duke remained standing. He gave a hand signal, and the house troopers in footman uniform around the table stepped back, standing at attention. Uneasy silence settled over the room. Jessica, looking down the length of the table, saw a faint trembling at the corners of Leto's mouth, noted the dark flush of anger on his cheeks. What has angered him, she asked herself. Surely not my invitation to the smuggler. Some question my changing of the laving basin custom, Leto said. This is my way of telling you that many things will change. Embarrassed silence settled over the table. They think him drunk, Jessica thought. Leto lifted his water flagon, held it aloft, where the suspenser lights shot beams of reflection off it. As a chevalier of the Imperium, then, he said, I give you a toast. The others grasped their flagons, all eyes focused on the Duke. In the sudden stillness, a suspenser light drifted slightly in an errant breeze from the serving kitchen hallway. Shadows played across the Duke's hawk features. Here I am and here I remain, he barked. There was an abortive movement of flagons toward mouths, stopped as the Duke remained with arm upraised. My toast is one of those maxims so dear to our hearts. Business makes progress. Fortune passes everywhere. He sipped his water. The others joined him. Questioning glances passed among them. Gurney, the Duke called. From an alcove at Leto's end of the room came Halleck's voice. Here, my lord. Give us a tune, Gurney. A minor chord from the ballast set floated out of the alcove. Servants began putting plates of food on the table at the Duke's gesture, releasing them. Roast desert hare in sauce cepeda, a plumage syrian, chuka under glass, coffee with melange, a rich cinnamon odor from the spice wafted across the table. 
a true potawa, served with sparkling Caladan wine. Still, the duke remained standing. As the guests waited, their attention torn between the dishes placed before them and the standing duke, Leto said, In olden times, it was the duty of the host to entertain his guests with his own talents. His knuckles turned white, so fiercely did he grip his water flagon. I cannot sing, but I give you the words of Gurney's song. Consider it another toast, a toast to all who've died bringing us to this station. An uncomfortable stirring sounded around the table. Jessica lowered her gaze, glanced at the people seated nearest her. There was the round-faced water shipper and his woman, the pale and austere guild bank representative. He seemed a whistle-faced scarecrow with his eyes fixed on Leto. The rugged and scar-faced Tuick, his blue within blue eyes downcast. Review, friends, troops, long past review, the duke intoned. All to fate, a weight of pains and dollars. Their spirits wear our silver collars. Review, friends, troops long past review. Each a dot of time without pretense of guile. With them passes the lure of fortune. Review, friends, troops long past review. When our time ends on its rictus smile, we'll pass the lure of fortune. The Duke allowed his voice to trail off on the last line, took a deep drink from his water flagon, slammed it back onto the table. Water slopped over the brim onto the linen. The others drank in embarrassed silence. Again, the Duke lifted his water flagon, and this time emptied its remaining half onto the floor, knowing that the others around the table must do the same. Jessica was first to follow his example. There was a frozen moment before the others began emptying their flagons. Jessica saw how Paul, seated near his father, was studying the reactions around him. She found herself also fascinated by what her guests' actions revealed, especially among the women. This was clean, potable water, not something already cast away in a sopping towel. Reluctance to just discard it exposed itself in trembling hands, delayed reactions, nervous laughter, and violent obedience to the necessity. One woman dropped her flagon, looked the other way as her male companion recovered it. Kynes, though, caught her attention most sharply. The planetologist hesitated, then emptied his flagon into a container beneath his jacket. He smiled at Jessica as he caught her watching him, raised the empty flagon to her in a silent toast. He appeared completely unembarrassed by his action. Halleck's music still wafted over the room, but it had come out of its minor key, lilting and lively now as though he were trying to lift the mood. Let the dinner commence, the Duke said, and sank into his chair. He's angry and uncertain, Jessica thought. The loss of that factory crawler hit him more deeply than it should have. It must be something more than that loss. He acts like a desperate man. She lifted her fork, hoping in the motion to hide her own sudden bitterness. Why not? He is desperate. Slowly at first, then with increasing animation, the dinner got underway. The stillsuit manufacturer complimented Jessica on her chef and her wine. We brought both from Caladan, she said. 
superb, he said, tasting the chukka. Simply superb, and not a hint of melange in it. One gets so tired of the spice in everything. The Guild Bank representative looked across at Kynes. I understand, Dr. Kynes, that another factory crawler has been lost to a worm. News travels fast, the Duke said. Then it's true, the banker asked, shifting his attention to Leto. Of course it's true, the Duke snapped. The blasted carry-all disappeared. It shouldn't be possible for anything that big to disappear. When the worm came, there was nothing to recover the crawler, Kynes said. It should not be possible, the Duke repeated. No one saw the carry-all leave, the banker asked. Spotters customarily keep their eyes on the sand, Kynes said. They're primarily interested in worm sign. A carry-all's complement usually is four men, two pilots, and two journeymen attachers. If one or even two of this crew were in the pay of the Duke's foes... Ah, I see, the banker said. And you, as judge of the change, do you challenge this? I shall have to consider my position carefully, Kynes said. And I certainly will not discuss it at table. And he thought, that pale skeleton of a man, he knows this is the kind of infraction I was instructed to ignore. The banker smiled, returned his attention to his food. Jessica sat remembering a lecture from her Benny Gesserit school days. The subject had been espionage and counter-espionage. A plump, happy-faced reverend mother had been the lecturer, her jolly voice contrasting weirdly with the subject matter. A thing to note about any espionage and or counter-espionage school is the similar basic reaction pattern of all its graduates. Any enclosed discipline sets its stamp, its pattern, upon its students. That pattern is susceptible to analysis and prediction. Now, motivational patterns are going to be similar among all espionage agents. That is to say, there will be certain types of motivation that are similar, despite differing schools or opposed aims. You will study first how to separate this element from your analysis. In the beginning, through interrogation patterns that betray the inner orientation of the interrogators. Secondly, by close observation of language, thought, orient, find it fairly simple to determine the root languages of your subjects, of course, both through voice inflection and speech pattern. Now, sitting at table with her son and her duke and their guests, hearing the Guild Bank representative, Jessica felt a chill of realization. The man was a Harkonnen agent. He had the Gady Prime speech pattern, subtly masked but exposed to her trained awareness, as though he had announced himself. Does this mean the Guild itself has taken sides against House Atreides? She asked herself. The thought shocked her, and she masked her emotion by calling for a new dish, all the while listening for the man to betray his purpose. He will shift the conversation next to something seemingly innocent, but with ominous overtones, she told herself. It's his pattern. The banker swallowed, took a sip of wine, smiled at something said to him by the woman on his right. He seemed to listen for a moment to a man down the table who was explaining to the duke that native Arakeen plants had no thorns. 
I enjoy watching the flights of birds on Arrakis, the banker said, directing his words at Jessica. All of our birds, of course, are carrion eaters, and many exist without water, having become blood drinkers. The stillsuit manufacturer's daughter, seated between Paul and his father at the other end of the table, twisted her pretty face into a frown, said, Oh, Susu, you say the most disgusting things. The banker smiled. They call me Susu because I'm financial advisor to the Water Peddlers Union. And as Jessica continued to look at him without comment, he added, Because of the water seller's cry, Susu, Sook! and he imitated the call with such accuracy that many around the table laughed. Jessica heard the boastful tone of voice, but noted most that the young woman had spoken on cue, a set piece. She had produced the excuse for the banker to say what he had said. Jessica glanced at Lingar Butte. The water magnet was scowling, concentrating on his dinner. It came to Jessica that the banker had said, I, too, control that ultimate source of power on Arrakis. Water. Paul had marked the falseness in his dinner companion's voice, saw that his mother was following the conversation with Benny Jesserit intensity. On impulse, he decided to play the foil, draw the exchange out. He addressed himself to the banker. Do you mean, sir, that these birds are cannibals? That's an odd question, young master, the banker said. I merely said, the birds drink blood. It doesn't have to be the blood of their own kind, does it? It was not an odd question, Paul said, and Jessica noted the brittle, riposte quality of her training exposed in his voice. Most educated people know that the worst potential competition for any young organism can come from its own kind. He deliberately forked a bite of food from his companion's plate, ate it. They are eating from the same bowl. They have the same basic requirements. The banker stiffened, scowled at the duke. Do not make the error of considering my son a child, the duke said, and he smiled. Jessica glanced around the table, noted that Butte had brightened, that both Kynes and the smuggler Tuick were grinning. It's a rule of ecology, Kynes said, that the young master appears to understand quite well. The struggle between life elements is the struggle for the free energy of a system. Blood's an efficient energy source. The banker put down his fork, spoke in an angry voice. It's said that the Fremen scum drink the blood of their dead. Kynes shook his head, spoke in a lecturing tone. Not the blood, sir, but all of a man's water, ultimately, belongs to his people, to his tribe. It's a necessity when you live near the Great Flat. All water's precious there, and the human body is composed of some 70% water by weight. A dead man, surely, no longer requires that water. The banker put both hands against the table beside his plate, and Jessica thought he was going to push himself back, leave in a rage. Kynes looked at Jessica. Forgive me, my lady, for elaborating on such an ugly subject at table, but you were being told falsehood, and it needed clarifying. You've associated so long with Fremen that you've lost all sensibilities, the banker rasped. Kynes looked at him calmly, studied the pale, trembling face. Are you challenging me, sir? The banker froze. 
He swallowed, spoke stiffly. Of course not. I did not so insult our host and hostess. Jessica heard the fear in the man's voice, saw it in his face, in his breathing, in the pulse of a vein at his temple. The man was terrified of kinds. Our host and hostess are quite capable of deciding for themselves when they've been insulted, Kynes said. They're brave people who understand defense of honor. We all may attest to their courage by the fact that they are here now on Arrakis. Jessica saw that Leto was enjoying this. Most of the others were not. People all around the table sat poised for flight, hands out of sight under the table. Two notable exceptions were Butte, who was openly smiling at the banker's discomfiture, and the smuggler, Tuick, who appeared to be watching Kynes for a cue. Jessica saw that Paul was looking at Kynes in admiration. Well, Kynes said. I meant no offense, the banker muttered. If offense was taken, please accept my apologies. Freely given, freely accepted, Kynes said. He smiled at Jessica, resumed eating as though nothing had happened. Jessica saw that the smuggler, too, had relaxed. She remarked this. The man had shown every aspect of an aide ready to leap to Kynes' assistance. There existed an accord of some sort between Kynes and Tuick. Leto toyed with a fork, looked speculatively at Kynes. The ecologist's manner indicated a change in attitude toward the house of Atreides. Kynes had seemed colder on their trip over the desert. Jessica signaled for another course of food and drink. Servants appeared with langue de lapin de jarin, red wine and a sauce of mushroom yeast on the side. Slowly, the dinner conversation resumed, but Jessica heard the agitation in it, the brittle quality, saw that the banker ate in sullen silence. Kynes would have killed him without hesitating, she thought, and she realized that there was an offhand attitude toward killing in Kynes' manner. He was a casual killer, and she guessed that this was a Fremen quality. Jessica turned to the stillsuit manufacturer on her left, said, I find myself continually amazed by the importance of water on Arrakis. Very important, he agreed. What is this dish? It's delicious. Tongues of wild rabbit in a special sauce, she said. A very old recipe. I must have that recipe, the man said. She nodded. I'll see that you get it. Kynes looked at Jessica, said, <clears throat> The newcomer to Arrakis frequently underestimates the importance of water here. You are dealing, you see, with the law of the minimum. She heard the testing quality in his voice, said, Growth is limited by that necessity which is present in the least amount, and, naturally, the least favorable condition controls the rate of growth. It's rare to find members of a great house aware of planetological problems, Kynes said. Water is the least favorable condition for life on Arrakis. And remember that growth itself can produce unfavorable conditions unless treated with extreme care. Jessica sensed a hidden message in Kynes' words, but knew she was missing it. Growth, she said. Do you mean Arrakis? 
can have an orderly cycle of water to sustain human life under more favorable conditions? Impossible, the water magnet barked. Jessica turned her attention to Butte. Impossible? Impossible on Arrakis, he said. Don't listen to this dreamer. All the laboratory evidence is against him. Kynes looked at Butte, and Jessica noted that the other conversations around the table had stopped while people concentrated on this new interchange. Laboratory evidence tends to blind us to a very simple fact, Kynes said. That fact is this. We are dealing here with matters that originated and exist out of doors, where plants and animals carry on their normal existence. Normal, Butte snorted. Nothing about Arrakis is normal. Quite the contrary, Kynes said. Certain harmonies could be set up here along self-sustaining lines. You merely have to understand the limits of the planet and the pressures upon it. It'll never be done, Butte said. The Duke came to a sudden realization, placing the point where Kynes' attitude had changed. It had been when Jessica had spoken of holding the conservatory plants in trust for Arrakis. What would it take to set up the self-sustaining system, Dr. Kynes, Leto asked. If we can get 3% of the green plant element on Arrakis involved in forming carbon compounds as foodstuffs, We've started the cyclic system, Kynes said. Water's the only problem, the Duke asked. He sensed Kynes' excitement, felt himself caught up in it. Water overshadows the other problems, Kynes said. This planet has much oxygen without its usual concomitants, widespread plant life and large sources of free carbon dioxide from such phenomena as volcanoes. There are unusual chemical interchanges over large surface areas here. Do you have pilot projects, the Duke asked. We've had a long time in which to build up the Tansley effect, small unit experiments on an amateur basis from which my science may now draw its working facts, Kynes said. There isn't enough water, Butte said. There just isn't enough water. Master Butte is an expert on water, Kynes said. He smiled, turned back to his dinner. The Duke gestured sharply down with his right hand, barked, No! I want an answer. Is there enough water, Dr. Kynes? Kynes stared at his plate. Jessica watched the play of emotion on his face. He masks himself well, she thought. But she had him registered now and read that he regretted his words. Is there enough water, the Duke demanded. There may be, Kynes said. He's faking uncertainty, Jessica thought. With his deeper truth sense, Paul caught the underlying motive, had to use every ounce of his training to mask his excitement. There is enough water, but Kynes doesn't wish it to be known. Our planetologist has many interesting dreams, Butte said. He dreams with the Fremen of prophecies and messiahs. Chuckles sounded an odd place around the table. Jessica marked them, the smuggler, the stillsuit manufacturer's daughter, Duncan Idaho, the woman with the mysterious escort service. Tensions are oddly distributed here tonight, Jessica thought. There's too much going on of which I'm not aware. I'll have to develop new information sources. The Duke passed his gaze from Kynes to Butte to Jessica. He felt 
oddly let down as though something vital had passed him here. Maybe, he muttered. Kynes spoke quickly. Perhaps we should discuss this another time, my lord. There are so many, the planetologist broke off as a uniformed Atreides trooper hurried in through the service door, was passed by the guard, and rushed to the duke's side. The man bent, whispering into Leto's ear. Jessica recognized the capsign of Hawat's corps, fought down uneasiness. She addressed herself to the stillsuit manufacturer's feminine companion, a tiny, dark-haired woman with a doll face, a touch of epicanthic fold to the eyes. "'You've hardly touched your dinner, my dear,' Jessica said. "'May I order you something?' The woman looked at the stillsuit manufacturer before answering, then, I'm not very hungry. Abruptly, the duke stood up beside his trooper, spoke in a harsh tone of command. Stay seated, everyone. You will have to forgive me, but a matter has arisen that requires my personal attention. He stepped aside. Paul, take over as host for me, if you please. Paul stood, wanting to ask why his father had to leave, knowing he had to play this with the grand manner. He moved around to his father's chair, sat down in it. The duke turned to the alcove where Halleck sat, said, Gurney, please take Paul's place at table. We mustn't have an odd number here. When the dinner's over, I may want you to bring Paul to the field CP. Wait for my call. Halleck emerged from the alcove in dress uniform, his lumpy ugliness seeming out of place in the glittering finery. He leaned his ballast against the wall, crossed to the chair Paul had occupied, sat down. There's no need for alarm, the duke said, but I must ask that no one leave until our house guard says it's safe. You will be perfectly secure as long as you remain here, and we'll have this little trouble cleared up very shortly. Paul caught the code words in his father's message. Guard, safe, secure, shortly. The problem was security, not violence. He saw that his mother had read the same message. They both relaxed. The duke gave a short nod, wheeled, and strode through the service door, followed by his trooper. Paul said, Please go on with your dinner. I believe Dr. Kynes was discussing water. May we discuss it another time, Kynes asked. By all means, Paul said. And Jessica noted with pride her son's dignity, the mature sense of assurance. The banker picked up his water flag and gestured with it at Butte. None of us here can surpass Master Lingar Butte in flowery phrases. One might almost assume he aspired to great house status. Come, Master Butte, lead us in a toast. Perhaps you've a dollop of wisdom for the boy who must be treated like a man. Jessica clenched her right hand into a fist beneath the table. She saw a hand signal pass from Halleck to Idaho, saw the house troopers along the walls move into positions of maximum guard. Butte cast a venomous glare at the banker. Paul glanced at Halleck, took in the defensive positions of his guards, looked at the banker until the man lowered the water flag gun. He said, Once on Caladan, I saw the body of a drowned fisherman recovered. He drowned? It was the stillsuit manufacturer's daughter. Paul hesitated then, Yes, immersed in water until dead, drowned. What an interesting way to die, she said. Paul's smile became brittle. He returned his attention to the banker. The interesting thing about this man was the wounds on his shoulders, made by another fisherman's claw boots. This fisherman was one of several in a boat, a craft for traveling on water, that foundered, sank beneath the water. 
Another fisherman, helping recover the body, said he'd seen marks like this man's wounds several times. They meant another drowning fisherman had tried to stand on this poor fellow's shoulders in the attempt to reach up to the surface, to reach air. Why is this interesting, the banker asked. Because of an observation made by my father at the time. He said the drowning man who climbs on your shoulders to save himself is understandable, except when you see it happen in the drawing room. Paul hesitated just long enough for the banker to see the point coming then. And I should add, except when you see it at the dinner table. A sudden stillness enfolded the room. That was rash, Jessica thought. This banker might have enough rank to call my son out. She saw that Idaho was poised for instant action. The house troopers were alert. Gurney Halleck had his eyes on the men opposite him. Ho, ho, ho! It was the smuggler, Tuick, head thrown back, laughing with abandon. Nervous smiles appeared around the table. Butte was grinning. The banker had pushed his chair back, was glaring at Paul. Kynes said, One baits an Atreides at his own risk. Is it Atreides' custom to insult their guests? The banker demanded. Before Paul could answer, Jessica leaned forward, said, Sir! And she thought, we must learn this Harkonnen creature's game. Is he here to try for Paul? Does he have help? My son displays a general garment, and you claim it's cut to your fit? Jessica asked. What a fascinating revelation. She slid a hand down her leg to the Chris knife she had fastened in a calf sheath. The banker turned his glare on Jessica. Eyes shifted away from Paul, and she saw him ease himself back from the table, freeing himself for action. He had focused on the code word garment, prepare for violence. Kynes directed a speculative look at Jessica, gave a subtle hand signal to Tuick. The smuggler lurched to his feet, lifted his flagon. I'll give you a toast, he said, to young Paul Atreides, still a lad by his looks, but a man by his actions. Why do they intrude, Jessica asked herself. The banker stared now at Kynes, and Jessica saw terror return to the agent's face. People began responding all around the table. Where Kynes leads, people follow, Jessica thought. He has told us he sides with Paul. What's the secret of his power? It can't be because he's judge of the change. That's temporary, and certainly not because he's a civil servant. She removed her hand from the knife hilt, lifted her flagon to Kynes, who responded in kind. Only Paul and the banker, Susu, what an idiotic nickname, Jessica thought, remained empty-handed. The banker's attention stayed fixed on Kynes. Paul stared at his plate. I was handling it correctly, Paul thought. Why do they interfere? He glanced covertly at the heads of the guests across from him. In our society, people shouldn't be quick to take offense. It's frequently suicidal. He looked at the still-suit manufacturer's daughter beside him. Don't you think so, miss? Oh, yes, yes, indeed, I do, she said. There's too much violence. It makes me sick. And lots of times no offense is meant, but people die anyway. It doesn't make sense. Indeed, it doesn't, Halleck said. Jessica saw the near perfection of the girl's act, realized that empty-headed little female is not an empty-headed little female. 
She saw then the pattern of the threat and understood that Halleck, too, had detected it. They had planned to lure Paul with sex. Jessica relaxed. Her son had probably been the first to see it. His training hadn't overlooked that obvious gambit. Kynes spoke to the banker. Isn't another apology in order? The banker turned a sickly grin toward Jessica, said, My lady, I fear I've overindulged in your wines. You serve potent drink at table, and I'm not accustomed to it. Jessica heard the venom beneath his tone spoke sweetly. When strangers meet, great allowance should be made for differences of custom and training. Thank you, my lady, he said. The dark-haired companion of the stillsuit manufacturer leaned toward Jessica, said, The Duke spoke of our being secure here. I do hope that doesn't mean more fighting. She was directed to lead the conversation this way, Jessica thought. Likely this will prove unimportant, Jessica said, but there's so much detail requiring the Duke's personal attention in these times. As long as enmity continues between Atreides and Harkonnen, we cannot be too careful. The Duke has sworn cunningly he will leave no Harkonnen agent alive on Arrakis, of course. She glanced at the Guild Bank agent. And the conventions naturally support him in this. She shifted her attention to Kynes. Is this not so, Dr. Kynes? Indeed it is, Kynes said. The stillsuit manufacturer pulled his companion gently back. She looked at him and said, I-, I do believe I'll eat something now. I'd like some of that bird dish you served earlier. Jessica signaled a servant, turned to the banker. And you, sir, were speaking of birds earlier and of their habits. I find so many interesting things about Arrakis. Tell me, where is the spice found? Do the hunters go deep into the desert? Oh, no, my lady, he said. Very little's known of the deep desert, and almost nothing of the southern regions. There's a tale that a great motherload of spice is to be found in the southern reaches, Kynes said, but I suspect it was an imaginative invention made solely for purposes of a song. Some daring spice hunters do, on occasion, penetrate into the edges of the central belt, but that's extremely dangerous. Navigation is uncertain, storms are frequent, casualties increase dramatically the farther you operate from shield wall bases. It hasn't been found profitable to venture too far south. Perhaps if we had a weather satellite. Butte looked up, spoke around a mouthful of food. It said... The Fremen travel there that they go anywhere and have hunted out soaks and sip wells even in the southern latitudes. Soaks and sip wells, Jessica asked. Kynes spoke quickly. Uh, Wild rumors, my lady. These are known on other planets, not on Arrakis. Uh, A soak is a place where water seeps to the surface or near enough to the surface to be found by digging according to certain signs. A sip well is a form of soak where a person draws water through a straw, so it is said. There's deception in his words, Jessica thought. Why is he lying, Paul wondered. How very interesting, Jessica said, and she thought, It is said. What a curious speech mannerism they have here. If they only knew what it reveals about their dependence on superstitions... I've heard you have a saying, Paul said, that polish comes from the cities, wisdom from the desert. 
There are many sayings on Arrakis, Kynes said. Before Jessica could frame a new question, a servant bent over her with a note. She opened it, saw the Duke's handwriting and code signs, scanned it. You'll be delighted to know, she said, that our Duke sends his reassurances. The matter which called him away has been settled. The missing carryall has been found. A Harkonnen agent in the crew overpowered the others and flew the machine to a smuggler's base, hoping to sell it there. Both man and machine were turned over to our forces. She nodded to Tuick. The smuggler nodded back. Jessica refolded the note, tucked it into her sleeve. I'm glad it didn't come to open battle, the banker said. The people have such hopes the Atreides will bring peace and prosperity. Especially prosperity, Butte said. Shall we have our dessert now, Jessica asked. I've had our chef prepare a Caladan suite. Panji rice in sauce dulce. It sounds wonderful, the still suit manufacturer said. Would it be possible to get the recipe? Any recipe you desire, Jessica said, registering the man for later mention to Howat. The still suit manufacturer was a fearful little climber and could be bought. Small talk resumed around her. Such a lovely fabric. He is having a setting made to match the jewel. We might try for a production increase next quarter. Jessica stared down at her plate, thinking of the coded part of Leto's message. The Harkonnens tried to get in a shipment of lace guns. We captured them. This may mean they've succeeded with other shipments. It certainly means they don't place much store in shields. Take appropriate precautions. Jessica focused her mind on lace guns, wondering. The white-hot beams of disruptive light could cut through any known substance, provided that substance was not shielded. The fact that feedback from a shield would explode both lace gun and shield did not bother the Harkonnens. Why? A lace gun shield explosion was a dangerous variable, could be more powerful than atomics, could kill not only the gunner but his shielded target. The unknowns here filled her with uneasiness. Paul said, I never doubted we'd find the carryall. Once my father moves to solve a problem, he solves it. This is a fact the Harkonnens are beginning to discover. He's boasting, Jessica thought. He shouldn't boast. No person who'll be sleeping far below ground level this night as a precaution against laser guns has the right to boast. The banker swallowed, took a sip of wine, smiled at something said to him by the woman on his right. He seemed to listen for a moment to a man down the table who was explaining to the Duke that native Arakeen plants had no thorns. I enjoy watching the flights of birds on Arrakis, the banker said, directing his words at Jessica. All of our birds, of course, are carrion eaters, and many exist without water, having become blood drinkers. The stillsuit manufacturer's daughter, seated between Paul and his father at the other end of the table, twisted her pretty face into a frown, said, Oh, Susu, you say the most disgusting things. The banker smiled. They call me Susu because I'm financial advisor to the Water Peddlers Union. And as Jessica continued to look at him without comment, he added, Because of the water seller's cry, Susu, Sook! And he imitated the call with such accuracy that many around the table laughed. 
Jessica heard the boastful tone of voice, but noted most that the young woman had spoken on cue, a set piece. She had produced the excuse for the banker to say what he had said. Jessica glanced at Lingar Butte. The water magnet was scowling, concentrating on his dinner. It came to Jessica that the banker had said, I, too, control that ultimate source of power on Arrakis. Water. Paul had marked the falseness in his dinner companion's voice, saw that his mother was following the conversation with Benny Gesserit intensity. On impulse, he decided to play the foil, draw the exchange out. He addressed himself to the banker. Do you mean, sir, that these birds are cannibals? That's an odd question, young master, the banker said. I merely said the birds drink blood. It doesn't have to be the blood of their own kind, does it? It was not an odd question, Paul said, and Jessica noted the brittle, riposte quality of her training exposed in his voice. Most educated people know that the worst potential competition for any young organism can come from its own kind. He deliberately forked a bite of food from his companion's plate, ate it. They are eating from the same bowl. They have the same basic requirements. The banker stiffened, scowled at the duke. Do not make the error of considering my son a child, the duke said, and he smiled. Jessica glanced around the table, noted that Butte had brightened, that both Kynes and the smuggler Tuick were grinning. It's a rule of ecology, Kynes said, that the young master appears to understand quite well. The struggle between life elements is the struggle for the free energy of a system. Blood's an efficient energy source. The banker put down his fork, spoke in an angry voice. It's said that the Fremen scum drink the blood of their dead. Kynes shook his head, spoke in a lecturing tone. Not the blood, sir, but all of a man's water, ultimately, belongs to his people, to his tribe. It's a necessity when you live near the Great Flat. All water's precious there, and the human body is composed of some 70% water by weight. A dead man, surely, no longer requires that water. The banker put both hands against the table beside his plate, and Jessica thought he was going to push himself back, leave in a rage. Kynes looked at Jessica. Forgive me, my lady, for elaborating on such an ugly subject at table, but you were being told falsehood, and it needed clarifying. You've associated so long with Fremen that you've lost all sensibilities, the banker rasped. Kynes looked at him calmly, studied the pale, trembling face. Are you challenging me, sir? The banker froze. He swallowed, spoke stiffly. Of course not. I did not so insult our host and hostess. Jessica heard the fear in the man's voice, saw it in his face, in his breathing, in the pulse of a vein at his temple. The man was terrified of Kynes. Our host and hostess are quite capable of deciding for themselves when they've been insulted, Kynes said. They're brave people who understand defense of honor. We all may attest to their courage by the fact that they are here now, on Arrakis. Jessica saw that Leto was enjoying this. Most of the others were not. People all around the table sat poised for flight, hands out of sight under the table, Two notable exceptions were Butte, 
who was openly smiling at the banker's discomfiture, and the smuggler, Tuick, who appeared to be watching Kynes for a cue. Jessica saw that Paul was looking at Kynes in admiration. Well, Kynes said. I meant no offense, the banker muttered. If offense was taken, please accept my apologies. Freely given, freely accepted, Kynes said. He smiled at Jessica, resumed eating as though nothing had happened. Jessica saw that the smuggler, too, had relaxed. She remarked this. The man had shown every aspect of an aide ready to leap to Kynes' assistance. There existed an accord of some sort between Kynes and Tuick. Leto toyed with a fork, looked speculatively at Kynes. The ecologist's manner indicated a change in attitude toward the house of Atreides. Kynes had seemed colder on their trip over the desert. Jessica signaled for another course of food and drink. Servants appeared with langue de lapin de jarin, red wine and a sauce of mushroom yeast on the side. Slowly, the dinner conversation resumed, but Jessica heard the agitation in it, the brittle quality, saw that the banker ate in sullen silence. Kynes would have killed him without hesitating, she thought, and she realized that there was an offhand attitude toward killing in Kynes' manner. He was a casual killer, and she guessed that this was a Fremen quality. Jessica turned to the stillsuit manufacturer on her left, said, I find myself continually amazed by the importance of water on Arrakis. Very important, he agreed. What is this dish? It's delicious. Tongues of wild rabbit in a special sauce, she said. A very old recipe. I must have that recipe, the man said. She nodded. I'll see that you get it. Kynes looked at Jessica, said, <clears throat> The newcomer to Arrakis frequently underestimates the importance of water here. You are dealing, you see, with the law of the minimum. She heard the testing quality in his voice, said, Growth is limited by that necessity which is present in the least amount, and, naturally, the least favorable condition controls the rate of growth. It's rare to find members of a great house aware of planetological problems, Kynes said. Water is the least favorable condition for life on Arrakis, and remember that growth itself can produce unfavorable conditions unless treated with extreme care. Jessica sensed a hidden message in Kynes' words, but knew she was missing it. Growth, she said. Do you mean Arrakis can have an orderly cycle of water to sustain human life under more favorable conditions? Impossible, the water magnet barked. Jessica turned her attention to Butte. Impossible? Impossible on Arrakis, he said. Don't listen to this dreamer. All the laboratory evidence is against him. Kynes looked at Butte, and Jessica noted that the other conversations around the table had stopped while people concentrated on this new interchange. Laboratory evidence tends to blind us to a very simple fact, Kynes said. That fact is this. We are dealing here with matters that originated and exist out of doors, where plants and animals carry on their normal existence. Normal, Butte snorted. Nothing about Arrakis is normal. Quite the contrary, Kynes said. 
Certain harmonies could be set up here along self-sustaining lines. You merely have to understand the limits of the planet and the pressures upon it. It'll never be done, Butte said. The Duke came to a sudden realization, placing the point where Kine's attitude had changed. It had been when Jessica had spoken of holding the conservatory plants in trust for Arrakis. What would it take to set up the self-sustaining system, Dr. Kynes, Leto asked. If we can get 3% of the green plant element on Arrakis involved in forming carbon compounds as foodstuffs, we've started the cyclic system, Kynes said. Water's the only problem, the Duke asked. He sensed Kynes' excitement, felt himself caught up in it. Water overshadows the other problems, Kynes said. This planet has much oxygen without its usual concomitants, widespread plant life and large sources of free carbon dioxide from such phenomena as volcanoes. There are unusual chemical interchanges over large surface areas here. Do you have pilot projects, the Duke asked. We've had a long time in which to build up the Tansley effect, small unit experiments on an amateur basis from which my science may now draw its working facts, Kynes said. There isn't enough water, Butte said. There just isn't enough water. Master Butte is an expert on water, Kynes said. He smiled, turned back to his dinner. The Duke gestured sharply down with his right hand, barked, No, I want an answer. Is there enough water, Dr. Kynes? Kynes stared at his plate. Jessica watched the play of emotion on his face. He masks himself well, she thought. But she had him registered now and read that he regretted his words. Is there enough water, the Duke demanded. There may be, Kynes said. He's faking uncertainty, Jessica thought. With his deeper truth sense, Paul caught the underlying motive, had to use every ounce of his training to mask his excitement. There is enough water, but Kynes doesn't wish it to be known. Our planetologist has many interesting dreams, Butte said. He dreams with the Fremen of prophecies and messiahs. Chuckles sounded at odd place around the table. Jessica marked them, the smuggler, the stillsuit manufacturer's daughter, Duncan Idaho, the woman with the mysterious escort service. Tensions are oddly distributed here tonight, Jessica thought. There's too much going on, of which I'm not aware. I'll have to develop new information sources. The Duke passed his gaze from Kynes to Butte to Jessica. He felt oddly let down, as though something vital had passed him here. Maybe, he muttered. Kynes spoke quickly. Perhaps we should discuss this another time, my lord. There are so many. The planetologist broke off as a uniformed Atreides trooper hurried in through the service door, was passed by the guard, and rushed to the duke's side. The man bent, whispering into Leto's ear. Jessica recognized the capsign of Hawat's corps, fought down uneasiness. She addressed herself to the stillsuit manufacturer's feminine companion a tiny, dark-haired woman with a doll face, a touch of epicanthic fold to the eyes. "'You've hardly touched your dinner, my dear,' Jessica said. "'May I order you something?' The woman looked at the stillsuit manufacturer before answering, then, "'I'm not very hungry.' Abruptly, the Duke stood up beside his trooper, spoke in a harsh tone of command. "'Stay seated, everyone.' 
You will have to forgive me, but a matter has arisen that requires my personal attention. He stepped aside. Paul, take over as host for me, if you please. Paul stood, wanting to ask why his father had to leave, knowing he had to play this with the grand manner. He moved around to his father's chair, sat down in it. The duke turned to the alcove where Halleck sat, said, Gurney, please take Paul's place at table. We mustn't have an odd number here. When the dinner's over, I may want you to bring Paul to the field CP. Wait for my call. Halleck emerged from the alcove in dress uniform, his lumpy ugliness seeming out of place in the glittering finery. He leaned his ballast against the wall, crossed to the chair Paul had occupied, sat down. There's no need for alarm, the duke said, but I must ask that no one leave until our house guard says it's safe. You will be perfectly secure as long as you remain here, and we'll have this little trouble cleared up very shortly. Paul caught the code words in his father's message. Guard, safe, secure, shortly. The problem was security, not violence. He saw that his mother had read the same message. They both relaxed. The duke gave a short nod, wheeled, and strode through the service door, followed by his trooper. Paul said, Please go on with your dinner. I believe Dr. Kynes was discussing water. May we discuss it another time, Kynes asked. By all means, Paul said. And Jessica noted with pride her son's dignity, the mature sense of assurance. The banker picked up his water flag and gestured with it at Butte. None of us here can surpass Master Lingar Butte in flowery phrases. One might almost assume he aspired to great house status. Come, Master Butte, lead us in a toast. Perhaps you've a dollop of wisdom for the boy who must be treated like a man. Jessica clenched her right hand into a fist beneath the table. She saw a hand signal pass from Halleck to Idaho, saw the house troopers along the walls move into positions of maximum guard. Butte cast a venomous glare at the banker. Paul glanced at Halleck, took in the defensive positions of his guards, looked at the banker until the man lowered the water flag gun. He said, Once on Caladan, I saw the body of a drowned fisherman recovered. He drowned? It was the stillsuit manufacturer's daughter. Paul hesitated then. Yes, immersed in water until dead, drowned. What an interesting way to die, she said. Paul's smile became brittle. He returned his attention to the banker. The interesting thing about this man was the wounds on his shoulders, made by another fisherman's claw boots. This fisherman was one of several in a boat, a craft for traveling on water, that foundered, sank beneath the water. Another fisherman, helping recover the body, said he'd seen marks like this man's wounds several times. They meant another drowning fisherman had tried to stand on this poor fellow's shoulders in the attempt to reach up to the surface, to reach air. Why is this interesting, the banker asked. Because of an observation made by my father at the time. He said the drowning man who climbs on your shoulders to save himself is understandable, except when you see it happen in the drawing room. Paul hesitated just long enough for the banker to see the point coming then. And I should add, except when you see it at the dinner table. A sudden stillness enfolded the room. That was rash, Jessica thought. This banker might have enough rank to call my son out. 
She saw that Idaho was poised for instant action. The house troopers were alert. Gurney Halleck had his eyes on the men opposite him. Ho, ho, ho! It was the smuggler, Tuick, head thrown back, laughing with abandon. Nervous smiles appeared around the table. Butte was grinning. The banker had pushed his chair back, was glaring at Paul. Kynes said, One baits an Atreides at his own risk. Is it Atreides' custom to insult their guests? The banker demanded. Before Paul could answer, Jessica leaned forward, said, Sir! And she thought, We must learn this Harkonnen creature's game. Is he here to try for Paul? Does he have help? My son displays a general garment, and you claim it's cut to your fit? Jessica asked. What a fascinating revelation. She slid a hand down her leg to the Chris knife she had fastened in a calf sheath. The banker turned his glare on Jessica. Eyes shifted away from Paul, and she saw him ease himself back from the table, freeing himself for action. He had focused on the code word garment, prepare for violence. Kynes directed a speculative look at Jessica, gave a subtle hand signal to Tuick. The smuggler lurched to his feet, lifted his flagon. I'll give you a toast, he said, to young Paul Atreides, still a lad by his looks, but a man by his actions. Why do they intrude, Jessica asked herself. The banker stared now at Kynes, and Jessica saw terror return to the agent's face. People began responding all around the table. Where Kynes leads, people follow, Jessica thought. He has told us he sides with Paul. What's the secret of his power? It can't be because he's judge of the change. That's temporary, and certainly not because he's a civil servant. She removed her hand from the crisp knife hilt, lifted her flagon to Kynes, who responded in kind. Only Paul and the banker. Susu, what an idiotic nickname, Jessica thought, remained empty-handed. The banker's attention stayed fixed on Kynes. Paul stared at his plate. I was handling it correctly, Paul thought. Why do they interfere? He glanced covertly at the heads of the guests across from him. In our society, people shouldn't be quick to take offense. It's frequently suicidal. He looked at the still-suit manufacturer's daughter beside him. Don't you think so, miss? Oh, yes, yes, indeed, I do, she said. There's too much violence. It makes me sick. And lots of times no offense is meant, but people die anyway. It doesn't make sense. Indeed, it doesn't, Halleck said. Jessica saw the near perfection of the girl's act, realized that empty-headed little female is not an empty-headed little female. She saw then the pattern of the threat and understood that Halleck, too, had detected it. They had planned to lure Paul with sex. Jessica relaxed. Her son had probably been the first to see it. His training hadn't overlooked that obvious gambit. Kynes spoke to the banker. Isn't another apology in order? The banker turned a sickly grin toward Jessica, said, My lady, I fear I've overindulged in your wines. You serve potent drink at table, and I'm not accustomed to it. Jessica heard the venom beneath his tone spoke sweetly. When strangers meet, great allowance should be made for differences of custom and training. Thank you, my lady, he said. The dark-haired companion of the stillsuit manufacturer leaned toward Jessica, said, 
The Duke spoke of our being secure here. I do hope that doesn't mean more fighting. She was directed to lead the conversation this way, Jessica thought. Likely this will prove unimportant, Jessica said, but there's so much detail requiring the Duke's personal attention in these times. As long as enmity continues between Atreides and Harkonnen, we cannot be too careful. The Duke has sworn cunningly he will leave no Harkonnen agent alive on Arrakis, of course. She glanced at the Guild Bank agent. And the conventions naturally support him in this. She shifted her attention to Kynes. Is this not so, Dr. Kynes? Indeed it is, Kynes said. The stillsuit manufacturer pulled his companion gently back. She looked at him and said, I-, I do believe I'll eat something now. I'd like some of that bird dish you served earlier. Jessica signaled a servant, turned to the banker. And you, sir, were speaking of birds earlier and of their habits. I find so many interesting things about Arrakis. Tell me, where is the spice found? Do the hunters go deep into the desert? Oh, no, my lady, he said. Very little's known of the deep desert, and almost nothing of the southern regions. There's a tale that a great motherload of spice is to be found in the southern reaches, Kynes said, but I suspect it was an imaginative invention made solely for purposes of a song. Some daring spice hunters do, on occasion, penetrate into the edges of the central belt, but that's extremely dangerous. Navigation is uncertain, storms are frequent, casualties increase dramatically the farther you operate from shield wall bases. It hasn't been found profitable to venture too far south. Perhaps if we had a weather satellite. Butte looked up, spoke around a mouthful of food. It said the Fremen travel there, that they go anywhere and have hunted out soaks and sip wells even in the southern latitudes. Soaks and sip wells, Jessica asked. Kynes spoke quickly. Uh, Wild rumors, my lady. These are known on other planets, not on Arrakis. Uh, A soak is a place where water seeps to the surface or near enough to the surface to be found by digging according to certain signs. A sip well is a form of soak where a person draws water through a straw, so it is said. There's deception in his words, Jessica thought. Why is he lying, Paul wondered. How very interesting, Jessica said, and she thought, It is said. What a curious speech mannerism they have here. If they only knew what it reveals about their dependence on superstitions. I've heard you have a saying, Paul said, that polish comes from the cities, wisdom from the desert. There are many sayings on Arrakis, Kynes said. Before Jessica could frame a new question, a servant bent over her with a note. She opened it, saw the Duke's handwriting and code signs, scanned it. You'll be delighted to know, she said, that our Duke sends his reassurances. The matter which called him away has been settled. The missing carryall has been found. A Harkonnen agent in the crew overpowered the others and flew the machine to a smuggler's base, hoping to sell it there. Both man and machine were turned over to our forces. She nodded to Tuick. The smuggler nodded back. Jessica refolded the note, tucked it into her sleeve. I'm glad it didn't come to open battle, the banker said. The people have such hopes the Atreides will bring peace and prosperity. Especially prosperity, Butte said. 
Shall we have our dessert now? Jessica asked. I've had our chef prepare a Caladan sweet, panji rice in sauce dulce. It sounds wonderful, the still suit manufacturer said. Would it be possible to get the recipe? Any recipe you desire, Jessica said, registering the man for later mention to Howat. The still suit manufacturer was a fearful little climber and could be bought. Small talk resumed around her. Such a lovely fabric. He is having a setting made to match the jewel. We might try for a production increase next quarter. Jessica stared down at her plate, thinking of the coded part of Leto's message. The Harkonnens tried to get in a shipment of lace guns. We captured them. This may mean they've succeeded with other shipments. It certainly means they don't place much store in shields. Take appropriate precautions. Jessica focused her mind on lace guns, wondering. The white-hot beams of disruptive light could cut through any known substance, provided that substance was not shielded. The fact that feedback from a shield would explode both lace gun and shield did not bother the Harkonnens. Why? A lace gun shield explosion was a dangerous variable, could be more powerful than atomics, could kill not only the gunner but his shielded target. The unknowns here filled her with uneasiness. Paul said, I never doubted we'd find the carryall. Once my father moves to solve a problem, he solves it. This is a fact the Harkonnens are beginning to discover. He's boasting, Jessica thought. He shouldn't boast. No person who'll be sleeping far below ground level this night as a precaution against laze guns has the right to boast. <laughs>